Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show London Armed Response Police Officer Dave Sanders. Now, in episode 152, I sat down with Dave, but he was still working in uniform. We had an amazing conversation, but obviously there were some areas that we couldn't discuss. Well, Dave has since retired, so we came together again for a candid conversation and discussed a host of areas from guns and knife crime in the UK, police officer fitness, community policing, branding of law enforcement, leadership, his own perspective of COVID in London, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back to the show... Dave Sanders. Enjoy. Well, Dave, I want to say... Firstly, congratulations on your retirement. And secondly... Thank you. Welcome back to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you so much. It's 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 an honour to be back. I, I was waiting for you to work out that I'm actually a nobody, and you were going to invite me back. <laughs> oh wait, okay, never mind. The interview's over. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> so there's so much that we can talk about. As as we are both sitting here now, I wore a uniform. You wore a uniform. We transitioned out. There are some very important things to discuss to advocate for our brothers and sisters that are still wearing the uniform it's not a negative competition uh conversation it's not three you know, talking shit it's pulling some of these issues out of the shadows so that we can make sure that we address them so i'm very excited for us to have a slightly more candid conversation this time so absolutely looking forward to it absolutely so then as an opening one you know i like to to revisit this topic because the last, you know, three years, um, there was some great leaders, there's some good decisions made. There was definitely a lot of caution that was warranted at the beginning, but then there were some awful decisions made, and there were a lot of people affected by those decisions that no one wants to talk about anymore. You know, whether it's the complete um, discarding of the actual health of the nation conversation obesity mental health etc or whether it's the mental health element whether it's the loss of jobs or whatever it is so without loading the question i'd love to hear you know your perspective you're, you're in london you know walk me through those last you know two or three years um the highs and the lows for you so you know when when covid hit you know i, I remember vividly you know people talking about uh, you, you know, the, this, the pandemic's coming. How is it going to affect us? And, and you know, I, I was very much of the opinion of, oh, you know, it, it, you know, I can't see it being, you, you know, causing us too many, too many problems, you know, step up a lip, we'll just get through it and all that, you know. However, it, it was huge. It was huge everywhere and it had a massive effect um, 
on us as a nation, but also uh, certainly a personal effect on me and the the job that I did. You know, um, I was in the police at that point, working in London, as you know, and um, on a on a firearms unit. Um, so on armed response vehicles. So just you know, responding to to everyday calls as well as on calls in London and, and knife calls and any terrorist attacks. And, um, you know, COVID hit. And I think one of the first things I remember when sort of lockdown happened was the panic in our um, building of how we would get through, how we would maintain minimum resourcing levels when people started to go off sick, uh, it, you know, because it was undeniable the minute you started to get a sniffle. Of course, back then at the start of the pandemic, there was no testing. You know, we didn't have any of those testing early days, you know. Um, so it was it was a case of if you feel a bit grim, don't come into work. Well, you, you, you know, in, in all of us, I'm sure, were, were, you know, having a great deal of integrity. No one abused that. <laughs> um, but but surprisingly, you know, there, there are always those people you work with in every industry who you think, I guarantee they're going to be the first ones to go off with this. And of course, lo and behold, you know, it's, it, it's the, the, the same the same names come up again. And, and you're like, oh, well, yes, so and so is phoned in They they feel a little bit funny. So uh, that's them for the next 10 days. They're going to self-isolate at home. And, and it, it's amazing how in those first days how many people you're like, what, isolating again? Um, but, the, but I remember from a, an, an organisational point of view, uh, you know, I was a, a, I was a sergeant, so just a team leader. Um, uh, you know, and there, there are sort of two sergeants uh, on the team at that, at that time and a, a, a team of... 20 odd people 18 to 20 people so we had you know sort of 10 each that were managing and there was a real panic because you know in london we have to put out a minimum number of armed response vehicles every single shift just to deal with the day-to-day -day cases that that occur so how are we going to maintain that and and it, it there was an awful lot of urgent meetings and uh, you know and of course we didn't want to then suddenly put everyone in the same room because everyone's going to, you know, if someone then feels ill, everyone else is isolating. So we then had very hasty. There were some commercials on the TV at the time for, my, uh, is it Microsoft Teams? I think it's Microsoft Teams. Um, and um, there was a police officer being interviewed in one of these adverts. And uh, we always used to joke about it because he comes on and goes, yeah, Teams teams without teams the police couldn't operate um but it was quite funny it was exactly like that you know everything went to teams meetings um uh, overnight um but also overnight other things that happened um uh, handy uh, handy people handy people that's not the right word is it uh, you know i used to call it handyman i can't say handyman anymore handy people no um facilities department the facilities department appeared like, uh, you know, in the middle of the night with these plastic screens. And I, I have no idea where they got them all from, but these plastic screens appeared bolted to all our desks um, so that, you know, no one could breathe on anybody else. Um, 
boxes. Well, actually, I was I was about to say boxes masks turned up, but actually they didn't. And and this is one of the one of the minor gripes I have <laughs> was that um, the police and I'm sure the fire service had exactly the same problem, but we were probably the last people to get any PPE um, in relation to COVID. You know, we had a few boxes of gloves because we used latex gloves or nitrile gloves anyway for searching and stuff. So we had um, gloves, uh, but they were gone very quickly. Um, hand gel and stuff like that, we just didn't have it. We didn't have it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And b- because every police force, I think, was was pretty much left to their own devices to order it. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's someone in command listening to this going, no, no, it's very organised. But from my point of view on the ground level, we had nothing. You know, we, we had, you know, there were certainly no masks turned up they were like like hen's teeth you know um uh, uh, we were raiding sort of cbrn stores and and sort of begging and borrowing and stealing to get to get the relevant equipment so there was a a big knee-jerk reaction uh cleaning teams came in i remember um in the early days one of my colleagues not even on my unit uh, but working in the same building um but on the floor above um went off with flu-like symptoms and the team of people we, we hire when when somebody um has a dirty protest in a in a cell um define sure dirty pro- no no please paint the picture <laughs> oh <laughs> well for some reason people don't like being arrested sometimes and so they they smear fecal matter or they shit in their hand and they smear it all over the cell, right? That's um, the, the, so fe- fecal fluid artistry. Yes, a, a mural, um, uh, 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 yeah, uh, a personal product mural um, <laughs> is all over the. So they often they do that all over the walls and they they put it on the you, you know. So, um, so we have these teams of people, and I don't envy their job at all, you know. These companies we hire in, these poor people who come in in these paper suits and have to clean all this stuff off. And it's the same if, if people are sick or, uh, you, you, you know, have problems in, in, the, in the back of custody vans and things like that. So, but anyway, so normally they're reserved for, for you know, custody and cells and, and prisoner vans and things like that. Well, I remember this one person, this one officer went off sick with flu-like symptoms and this entire team of this company came in and fumigated the entire floor you know that you know, i accidentally walked in to the to, uh, to the the floor the second floor when it was happening and there were like people in gas tight suits it was like some sort of it, it was like something out of a science fiction film and they were spraying stuff and clearing the desks off and then it was like don't come in you know it, it was it was like a a scene out of outbreak um and i i was sort of stood there going is it safe for me to be in here? <laughs> Shall I go? Um, so, and, and that that kind of paranoia, that that was really difficult to deal with in the early days because everyone was like, well, I have to work. I have to work with people. Um, you know, we, for us, it was business as usual. You can't, you can't say to the police or any emergency services or any, let's face it, there are so many industries, and I take my hat off to them, there are so many industries that just cannot take the day off. 
Um, you can't just shut these things down. You, you know, anything that is related to critical national infrastructure, you, you just can't shut these things down. So um, all of those people have to keep going to work. And so for us, it was ironically like business as usual, but with all of these extra things in place to the point where, for example, um, you we tried to pair people up all the time. You know, in the UK, I mean, I, I can only imagine what it's like in America um, because I've seen it on TV. But I get the impression that you're partnered up with the same person a lot in, in the police in the States. Uh, um, uh, only because you know I'm used to you know watching Hill Street Blues from my youth and things like that. And the way um, I, the way I think it happens because I've I've watched a lot of television, so clearly I understand law enforcement completely. Is you get a disgruntled <laughs> alcoholic veteran and then a starry eyed yes. rookie, and they always that, put together. That's it. <laughs> yeah, they, they work they work together. Is that that's how it? That's how it be. works. It must um, be. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we we don't commonly do that in the UK. Um, it, you know, we we commonly just you know we are. A, a team of people however large and you work with different people every day quite often there are some units where you work together all the time but certainly on my team you know it, it's good to mix it about with who you're working with so you know you, you get to work with everybody um but of course that changed during covid so we're trying to put people together all the time so there's less chance of any cross-contamination um i uh, i used to teach uh, taser um and personal safety training so there's a real panic there about what are we going to do? You know, because a lot of the skills for handcuffs, batons and sprays and taser and all of that kind of thing, they are yearly recertifications. And and, of, and the same in firearms, you know, you've got to maintain your qualification shoots and all your skills up. So how are we going to maintain the, the training? Because initially there was a, a blanket, well, all training has to stop. Um, and of course that makes sense until you say, well, What's going to happen if if I take a shot and I miss um, because I haven't had any practice, you know, or I'm using my taser ineffectively because I haven't had any practice? So clearly, we can't stop training. We've got to keep training. So we did. Um, but then it's how do we maintain our safety? Uh, and, and, and obviously, at that point, officers were really concerned about not only themselves catching COVID, but taking it home and giving it to their families. And, 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 and a lot of officers, um, you know, have uh, perhaps families who, family members who are vulnerable, you know, maybe young children, maybe elderly members of their family, maybe family members who had illness, underlying medical conditions. So there's a lot of concern about not just for ourselves, but taking it home. And I, I know a colleague who actually bought a caravan and moved into a caravan for the entire lockdown period so he didn't contaminate his wife who had uh, underlying medical conditions um so people were making those kind of sacrifices you know they were living in sheds in the garden or living in the spare room so so they wouldn't do it um as i say training became um quite comical because you know you're trying to maintain a 2 meter distance between everybody and so as a result of that, in classrooms where I used to be able to take 20 people, I've got four four people in the classroom dotted in one in each corner. You know, we're all dressed up wearing face shields and masks and gloves. And, and, and it starts to, you know, become a bit untenable. But we, we managed, I think, in the in the truest, um, uh, you know, um, traditions of, of being British, we, we managed 
So just as we move forward, um, you know, it became clear that the middle common sense ground was absolutely there was a virus, an opportunistic virus, and your outcome really relied on the underlying health of the individual. The conversation became very polarized. I always refer to World War One trenches. You know, you pick one or the other. You can't be in the middle. Or you both get yep. shot <laughs> shot by both sides. Yeah. You know, so God forbid you talk about, you know, nutrition and exercise and sleep and things like that. So anyway, so we move forward, though. But there were, you know, our brothers and sisters were succumbing to this. And I, I did say at the very beginning, look, if you want, if we've got an opportunistic virus, it's mirroring cancer and mental health and everything else. Our professions, especially the ones that are working the shifts at night, are actually very, yep. very vulnerable. And they're the ones holding the line, the doctors, the nurses, etc., law enforcement, fire, police, uh, excuse me, uh, EMS. So we did see a lot of deaths in police, fire, etc. What about yeah. with you guys in, in the uniform professions in London? <clears throat> so, I mean, it, it, it hit us quite hard when we had our first um, death from COVID in our organization, you know, and it, it it's someone you know. And, and um because we're we're very lucky in the UK in in that we don't have a lot of deaths in service from things like shootings or or from a, attacks on officers we're very lucky um partly because of the way we police and and partly because of the the the, the threats we face perhaps but um we, we are lucky we we most officers that die in the line of duty as it were are it's road traffic incidents, it's a variety of other things, you know, um, or illnesses. And and uh, and I remember, you know, that it, it wasn't in my building, but a, a building just around the corner um, where someone we all knew um, went off sick with COVID and, and then died. And they, they weren't that old and they, you know, they weren't, they didn't have obvious you know medical conditions that that we could all point to and and not feel better but you know just just, just try and find a reason um you, you know because sometimes these things are so are so random um you know so it, it does affect everybody my um uh my my great aunt who was a police officer um uh she was obviously long long retired um and she unfortunately she got covid and um you know it, it was and and her and her husband had been married for you know since since dot since the year dot and um and of course as soon as she got covid and was taken to hospital he wasn't allowed to see her and she died and he never got to see her again from the point where she was taken away in the ambulance, you know. So that hit me quite hard and it hit our, fa our family quite hard. And I think, um, you know, without speaking out of turn and getting anyone in trouble, um, I know that the only reason she had a family member holding her hand when she passed away was because one of my other relatives is a nurse in the same hospital. Now, that's more by luck than judgment, and uh, and she managed to bully her way into the room um, and spent her last moments with her. Otherwise, she would have been alone when she died. And I'm sorry to digress a little bit, but that's just a, 
uh, you know, a personal experience of of people who died during COVID. And I know that that hit me hard because I looked up to to my auntie die because she was a police officer and she's the only other one in the family, you know, other than my wife, you know, and and, um, uh, and so we shared lots of stories. And just prior to her going into hospital, she'd sent me all her old photographs from from the 60s when she was in the police and I'd put them all into an album for her and stuff like that. So anyway, I digress. But so it, it did hit hard and it hit hard when people in our organisation started to die as well. And and you, you know, and, and you started thinking, well, is this, is this going to happen to me? You know, I, I'm, I've always tried to stay fit and healthy, but you know, you, because of the, the media and, 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 you know, the very scary death toll in the corner of the news screen that was just scrolling up. I, I you know, it, I was like, what, what's going on here? You know, it, it is, they are, it, it, it got quite frightening really for everybody because you, you think, well, you know, I know it's highly unlikely, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm not, a vul- I'm not in a vulnerable category. I know it's highly unlikely I'm going to die, but you know, there is that chance because they're telling me there's that chance um whether they're over-egging it or not um you, you know they're telling me so we were all very very cautious we were all becoming ridiculously ocd and washing our hands a million times and and trying to be really careful with our interactions with the public because we were then thinking well am i going to either give this to a member of the public or get it from a member of the public um uh but there was a um you know a real concern and and even the people that i work with you know, we all got it. I mean, that's that's the other thing is, you know, pretty much all of us got it at one time or another. I got it uh, quite early on, um, you know, long before there was uh, a vaccine and just after they brought in testing for it. But before you had. Um, so, I mean, one of the things we did early on was um, we didn't have the facility in our office to test ourselves. Um we didn't have the the um, the test, so we we had to go somewhere else to test. And because I was, uh, I mean, a lot of us were being very responsible, but especially because I was a trainer, I was testing myself twice a week on a Monday and a Wednesday, making sure that I was safe to teach um, other officers. And one Monday morning, you know, I I, I felt all right, um, you know, but I I thought I better go and get tested. And the nearest testing centre was a good sort of fifteen minutes walk down the road so like i always did i trooped down there got tested was walking back to the base you know and they said oh you're here within a couple of hours or whatever or 40 i can't quite remember maybe 45 minutes but i'm walking back to the base i just arrived back at the base my phone pings going you got covid go home then a white van so, comes up um, the guys with masks they throw you in there yeah <laughs> <laughs> throw you in the Thames. by the people in the white suits <laughs> yeah. um and um uh, and then of course you know i I go home and I, I promptly give it to my wife. So, so, so then both of us were off with it. But, but everybody had it at one time or another, um, certainly within the base. And um, one of the other things that I found, uh, now this is purely anecdotal, um, you know, there's no sort of science behind this, but it was the fitter guys that tended to get knocked for six, you know, more than everybody else. And I don't know whether there's any science behind that or it's just my perception of it. But, you know, 
a lot of the guys on my unit were really into their fitness and you know you had triathletes and people who you know could run run for years and all that kind of stuff and and they were the ones that were really knocked off their feet with it and then you know came back and and struggled and uh um you know i, I was i was off my i mean literally knocked off my feet for 10 days now just um, to, just to jump in your team and yeah. some of these fit guys were you working just daytime shifts in your bed every night getting a good night's sleep or were you working shift work shifts of course so, you know i mean so the when the, when we rest and recover is when we repair and this is what i've talked about a lot you know they, oh, they say oh it's always the fit guys that get hurt well the guys that take their job seriously men and women you know that do the actual operational training do the extra fitness and strength and conditioning and then don't get the sleep we are more vulnerable to get hurt, to get that. But what's the alternative? You know what I mean? This is why I talk so much about rest and recovery between shifts. But just to kind of put that in there, there's a physiological no, right. reason why the people that take their job seriously often are in some ways more vulnerable in some areas. Well, to echo what you've just said, one of the I forgot to mention, what one of the first things they did was shut the gym in our base. They shut the gym. Now, you know, we're very lucky in that we we had a really good gym downstairs, um, but they shut the gym. Rather than saying, well, look, okay, your team works together anyway. And this was our argument. We were like, and, and look, I understand why they did it, but if we were managing working together, sitting in a car for eight to ten hours a day next to somebody else all day long, if you're handling the same kit and weapons and all that kind of stuff and we're testing regularly um you know why not let the team use the gym together and then we clean it down after i mean all of us were volunteering because we, we were you know whilst we're not all you, you know we're not bodybuilders or anything like that but you you know we want to stay fit we want to stay healthy to do the job there is a fitness test element to the job but it's it goes beyond that you know I, i'm you know, I'm no spring chicken, you know, I'm I'm 50, and and yet there are people on my team older than me. There are people on my unit way older than me, um, you know, up to 60, still doing the job, still running the fitness test. And and as you well know, as you get older, maintaining fitness gets harder and harder. But the first thing they did, and I know this, they did this nationally, they closed all the gyms. So you know, not only that, then you can't you can't get a set of kettlebells on Amazon for love nor money. You know, you can't you you, you know it it it's if you weren't prepared beforehand. I I was really lucky that you, you know, and quite by accident, like a year before, I'd I I'd stop I'd cancel my gym membership and I had stuff at home. So you know, kettlebells, skipping rope, all that kind of stuff. Um, and and uh, and uh, and an exercise bike, there's a, a spinning bike that you can probably see sat over my shoulder here um but um uh, again i was lucky and people were you know there was always like a black market in skipping ropes and kettlebells and and fitness bands and like you know someone in the locker room going uh, excuse me like, have you got um have you got a 16 kilogram kettlebell like you know so um no i've only uh, i've only got steroids sorry we're all yeah, out sorry, of kettlebells yeah, <laughs> I've only got, yeah i can only i can only give you drugs um but it, it, but it, it that did have a big effect, and 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 the, the and it is interesting you say about um, sleep and shifts because that's one of the things that that obviously can't change for emergency services and a lot of other industries. 
we have to work those shifts and you have to keep at it because whilst lockdown, oh, and I'll be honest with you, you know, crime, well, no, I would say crime stopped, but crime changed a lot during lockdown. You weren't getting drunken violence in the street, of course. You weren't getting, you know, I, I, I mean, for us, the terrorism threat, the threat picture changed massively because there was nobody in crowded spaces. Suicide um, bomber scared of COVID. That's an interesting headline. <laughs> I, yeah, well, I, I was going to say, you know, if you want to, um, if you want to affect uh, crime statistics, have another pandemic. You know, is it certain crime? Certain crime dropped so low, it was like, well, it's not worth even. Uh, even recording it um but um another crime of course went through the roof um domestic violence you know all of those kind of things go crazy when people are all cooped up uh in their houses um cyber crime undeniably you know all of that stuff that's not my area of expertise but you know um uh all the thing all the horrible things that happen on the internet go through the roof when all people can do is is, is be stuck at home but um yeah we're, we're we're not getting any time off the sleep doesn't improve at all especially not when you've got you've got these stresses as well of well i've just had to use public transport to get home and get to work have i picked it up am i bringing this back home am i infecting my household you know, you know, your sleep doesn't improve during a pandemic because you've got all those same stresses and strains as everybody else. We're not we're not immune to that, um, uh, but we're still having to go to work and 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 carry on as if nothing has happened. But trying to trying to balance all of that. Now, what was what was the level of stress? I mean, I've always loved the BBC, for example, up until and I wasn't present in the UK when you guys went through the pandemic. I traveled at the very end, spent almost a thousand dollars on tests for two weeks later for them to get rid of all tests. So that was my yeah. fucking COVID experience, getting nasal swabbed every time I got off a plane. Um, however, the BBC, I've always felt Overall, especially compared to freaking CNN and Fox over here, is a very middle of the road. This happened. These people died. Moving on, you know, and, and it's not normally opinion um, led. But over here, through my eyes, there was so much sensationalism, so much fear mongering that you had a virus that was killing people. And yet everything that was told to the American public was only going to make them sicker and more scared, therefore more vulnerable to the disease. So close parks and beaches, you know, close the gyms and get alcohol and fast food delivered to your home. Stay at home. We'll tell you what to do. Just don't don't do anything. So autonomy was stripped. And therefore, yeah, like you said, there was that kind of pervasive fear that was further breaking down the individual's immune system. What were you seeing as far as the message delivery in the UK? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something fairly controversial. And, uh, and, and I, I got a lot of stick for it at work. Um, um, and I'm sure a lot of people thought it was a, a burying your head in the sand thing, but it wasn't. And I'll explain what happened so it got so bad for me i had to stop watching the news i stopped watching tv and my wife was the same um and because the message wasn't changing nothing there was no information that was that that, that i could use um you know because all that you were getting was 
you know, contradiction after contradiction. Every five minutes, something else was coming out. You know, you couldn't get, you couldn't almost see the wood for the trees, really. Um, and as you say, the messages that were coming out um, were really frustrating. Um, and, and I'm not, a, I'm not a controversial kind of person. You know, I, I've always been a good little soldier. You know, but um, I, um, you know, several things frustrated me. You know, my, my mother lives alone in um in wales and she did everything by the book and pretty much she wasn't allowed out of her house for the whole of for, for two years pretty much you know wales had a really draconian sort of system she you know she used to go on long walks you know through the countryside and and you know which is great for your health and then was told she couldn't go more than whatever it was half a mile away from your house or whatever in us crazy um you know, and yet she lives in a rural part of the country where there is nobody around. Um, but people were getting turned around from natural beauty spots and sent home. Um, so, yeah, so lo and behold, what happened was, it, you know, I stopped watching the news because what I was getting on a daily basis at work was briefings. Um, and I suppose I was fortunate that... I was getting, I'm not saying I was getting any information that the public weren't getting, but I think they were giving us, you know, sort of bare statistics without any flavour. Uh, and it was like, right, here's some, here's the information. Now, this is the latest information. And if, because they were briefing us what to say if we were being asked by the public. So I, I got some really, I suppose, quite good um, briefings that were put out by um, uh, you know, the Home Office um, that, that were, were coming through to us via the MPCC, the National Police Chiefs Council, um, uh, and through our chief. And, and, and so that was how I was getting the information. And, and the, the sensationalism of the TV, I had to just stop watching because it was just getting, it was just getting too much. What were you seeing as far as the impact? So one of the things that was frustrating to me being a uh, firefighter paramedic so working in very very busy inner city poorer areas transporting to the hospitals that serve that areas was this message of oh my god there's patients in the hallway and all the paramedics in america that work in the urban setting going what the fuck are you talking about there's always patients in the hall we have to hold the wall we call it for hours sometimes just to offload what might be an absolute minor patient because they don't have the beds and they are short-staffed um, so, but undeniably, like I had a, um, a firefighter from LA recently, that was a hot spot where they were truly stacking bodies and, and calling people literally in their homes, you know, calling their deaths. Um, so there were those, those hot spots, but a lot of times as well, I've heard, I think it was Tom Beaver from Beaver Fit was saying that they actually were supplying makeshift morgues and ultimately they broke them all down again they were basically not used so yeah what you've got the sensationalism there's absolutely real deaths happening it was a real disease but the magnitude is what a lot of us question so what were you seeing as far as, as that element so one of the jobs that we were tasked with doing uh, on the firearms unit is uh, was was protecting the um uh, the nightingale hospitals um so they they set up um these temporary huge hospitals inside um you know sort of large commercial spaces um and one of them was down at um excel 
huge big um, sort of arena that they turned into in, into hospital space. And, you know, other people might have different experiences. So I, I can only speak from, from my experience. And, uh, you know, but from what I recall, and, and please somebody listening correct me if I'm wrong, but um, from what I recall, um, we were worried about those venues being a terrorist target because they would be, have so many people in them they were going to be packed to the rafters with, you know, with people with COVID. And so it was a real terrorist threat. They were empty. The, they were never used to the extent, I believe, that, that, that we thought, thankfully, because there wasn't the, the, the sort of the, 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 mass, uh, the, the mass number of casualties uh, at any one time that I think we were expecting. Um, and as a result of that, the, the Nightingales, not long after they were set up, I think they started to be dismantled as well. So they, um, I mean, a, again, a, a fantastic idea. And loads of people volunteered for those. And, you know, people doing amazing work to, to set them up and, uh, and, and volunteering to work there. Um, but again, so I, I, I didn't see that um, play out. But I think from what I understand from, as I say, um, my cousin who, uh, who who's a nurse um, uh, uh, and working in one of the hospitals and and she well I, I went to see her uh, when I went to my great aunt's funeral um, it was um, it was one of those really difficult things where I, I think it was a we had to wait ages before we were allowed to go to the funeral and it was one of those little gaps where they said you can now go to a funeral but you know we all had to stand a million miles apart and all that kind of uh, crazy stuff. And I saw her there, and um, she had pretty much permanent marks on her face from the goggles and the masks and the PPE, you know, that, that had embedded themselves in her face. You know, she'd spent whatever it is, you know, more than 12, 14, 16 hours a day wearing this PPE. And, you know, even with a brief conversation with her, she was saying how manic and chaotic it was in those hospitals so i think from my brief experience of that situation it was just that they didn't use the those big backup places that they set up but the actual hospitals were absolutely rammed and, and really stretched uh, more than they ordinarily are so when you spoke to your cousin did she was she immensely grateful for all of the clapping how much did that clapping help with the staffing and the number of beds and the ppe provision yeah i i, I don't know i mean she she didn't specifically sort of mention <laughs> it i i you know i i think i think it was a nice thing to do but i i i i just recall how look we know how fickle the public are and i just i mean obviously we're going through you you probably know we're going through a period at the moment of Lots of members of the NHS sort of uh, uh, out on strike and talking about pay and, and, and you know, better conditions and stuff. And it's really interesting how supportive people were and how they were heroes during the pandemic and everyone standing in their gardens applauding until they say, well, actually, we don't earn enough to survive and pay our bills. So we're going to do a protest outside a hospital and people are going, oh, you know, and suddenly they're hated, you know, and it, it's this sort of fickle wheel of fate that sort of rotates around very quickly, isn't it? You know, and, and one moment you're flavour of the month and next minute you're, you're down in the dumps. So it, 
um, it's nice for people to understand, but I, I, I th- and and stand in the garden applauding. But I do sometimes feel like I want to say to these people, "Well, put your money where your mouth is." You know, well, it, it it's great in theory, but how does this help us? Absolutely. There was one of my guests. I can't remember who it was now, but they they put it perfectly. They said, "You know what happens when you ask the British people to go outside and applaud the NHS, the doctors, the nurses, and everyone else in the hospital." He said, you put the responsibility squarely back on the doctors and nurses' shoulders. So you're not doing anything because you were like, well, I just went outside and I slapped my hands together. So, you know, go you, go team. All right, I'm going back to watch Tiger King. See you, see you tomorrow at yeah. five. You know, so- and it was ridiculous. And with that, with that amnesia element, that, that disposable or dissolvable gratitude, I saw it here. You had, you know, in the same in London, you had all these men and women on the front line with no PPE, no vaccinations, initially no tests, terrified that they were going to bring this seemingly deadly virus. Um, and it was deadly, you know, seemingly deadly to lots and lots and lots of people. And then it's not even a year before they're talking about how selfish they are for not taking the vaccine. It's yes. like, you know what I mean? And it's like, regardless of your stance, like I would never have had the vaccine had I not traveled. But I went to see my 104-year-old grandmother and I'm like, okay, if it helps 1%, I'll have this just because I care more about my grandmother and I'm not worried about this vaccine and my own health personally. But do I think that, you know, someone that doesn't want to get it as a responder that's that's gone basically raw dogged it for a fucking year, year and a half is a selfish murderer? Shame on you for if you were part of that fucking conversation because yeah. these men and women 100%. had no support and now you're taking their jobs because now you think that the vaccine is a be-all and end-all. And now, regardless of your stance, we know that it wasn't the the efficacy that we were told. So it was literally a 50-50 shot if it was even going to help. So I was never you know against it. I didn't think it was necessary if you were fit and healthy. However, the fact that you had the audacity to take these jobs from people that wouldn't have it after they were completely exposed early on, people should be fucking ashamed of themselves. Yeah, no, I, I agree, mate. I, 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 was, I, I was appalled at that. And, and I think what people forgot was, you know, we were working, we were working facing and, it, and it, you know, facing the virus every single day everybody we encountered were potential people who had the virus were picking it up on public transport traveling to and from work all of that kind of thing all with no protection no ppe at the start you know no tests and as you say no vaccine and people were fine with that um until there was a vaccine available and then it was like well if you don't if you don't have it instantly then you know you're some sort of social pariah um and and i just think it it uh, and then, and it happened over here, and I'm, I, I mean, someone in the NHF, NHS would have to confirm this, but I know they were under a great deal of pressure, and they, their jobs were threatened too. I don't know whether it actually came to it, but, um, um, but I know there were a number of people in the news saying that they're going to lose their jobs if, if, they don't, if they don't have the vaccine. And as you say, that kind of – treating people like that – you can't imagine it for anything else, can you? You can't imagine if you said to somebody, you know, um, oh, these are the new, um, these these are the new uniforms. You know, you need to wear these new red trousers. If you don't wear them, we're going to sack you. You know, it, it just it, it's a 
trite example, but you know, you, you can't imagine with anything else someone's gonna gonna threaten to sack somebody um, uh, over over something else. You know, it, it, it is a bizarre a bizarre thing, really, especially when it's down to someone's personal choice. And we are so so strong on supporting people's personal choice in everything else everything else that's i think that's the thing that confused me really was that you know we, we this is what we fight for we're fighting for people's choice to 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 live the way they want to live except for this one thing no you you can't choose that you know that's crazy. Well, I want to kind of move out of this this conversation, but there's a yes. couple of things I want to hit before we do because this is important. You know, like otherwise, this just goes away, and we carry on getting yeah. fatter and you know mentally more unwell, and then there's more violence and suicides and heart attacks and cancers and car accidents and everything else because we just shoved the last two or three years under the rug and we're like, well, just forget about it. Let's move on. You talked about domestic violence. This is a reoccurring theme that I've heard. Um, you know, you you take pretty much everything from people like i said the autonomy the very basal element that it is to be a human being there of course is going to be a mental health element i've heard some horrendous things as far as um increased abuse towards children but decreased reporting because a lot of times it's the teachers that were reporting abuse of kids and now they're not seeing them and then obviously domestic violence i've heard a lot from from the u.s here so you said about the decrease in you know for example covid um scared you know suicide bombers and (laughs) things like that but talk to me about the domestic violence element what what was that increase what were you seeing with your own eyes when people were kind of cooped up in these homes um i think where where i became exposed to i mean one of the uh, one of the fortunate things about the the role i was in was i i didn't have to go around to too many houses anymore and knock on the door when when neighbors had complained um but certainly anecdotally from from colleagues you, you know there were multiple multiple calls to houses because that's the only place where where people were but where i i particularly saw it start to happen um was people's reaction to suddenly being let out and and i think this is the other thing that we weren't prepared for was this pressure cooker idea of Right, you're all stuck in the house now, right? Okay, um, but tomorrow we're going to let you go to the pubs again, um, and they suddenly open, uh, and the chaos that ensued. You would have thought that it was the end of prohibition, um, that people hadn't been allowed to drink alcohol at home. Um, you know, people are queuing up to to get that first pint at twelve oh one in the morning or whatever, um, uh, and and. Then we saw, I mean, certainly anecdotally, I can definitely say we saw a huge upspike in violence, um, in, in street violence, in people fighting each other. In, because I think the other thing that, that we underestimate is how much we are social animals. We are, you know, we are in public used to dealing with other people. We are exposed to, to a variety of other people. When you say, well, now you're going to be, become a hermit for two years, and now we let you out. I think your tolerance level of, of people seemed to change. I mean, I certainly, I certainly experienced it myself when all of a sudden someone wants to sit next to me on the train. How very dare you? You know, <laughs> I've had that state empty. 
yeah, I've had that seat empty for two years. What are you doing? You know, in fact, more than that, I've had the whole carriage empty for two years and now there's people on my train again. Um, but, and I think that that did affect a lot of people. That the, 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 Not only were they at home rubbing each other up the wrong way, um, because let, let's face it, you know, one of the one of the great co- I'm I'm no psychologist, but one of the great causes of um, uh, of confrontation between you know families is stress, and and stress can you know whether it's financially or health wise, you know those are your two big stresses, aren't they? You know, have we got enough money to survive, and are we all fit and healthy? And, and you know, COVID attacked both of those things because people couldn't work, people weren't. I mean. Don't even get me started on my friends who were self-employed. They, you, you know, that they they were really stuck. Um, you, you know, it wasn't like they were sort of at home earning. They they were like, that's it. You you earn nothing. You know, and they were lucky if they had enough evidence to be able to prove that that they needed funds from the government. You know, so um, so you've got all of that financial worry. And the fact that you've then got this healthcare worry as well, and it's not surprising that everybody was was you know that's a powder keg, isn't it? Waiting to go off, um, and, and then what's one of the great you know relievers of stress and anxiety is exercise, and even even just going for a, a twenty minute a half hour walk. Oh, we're suddenly not allowed to do that. Um, you know, going to the gym, lifting some weights, doing anything to let off some steam. Um, I'm very lucky. I've got a garden outside. Um, immensely lucky, considering where I live. Um, I can't imagine having to go through COVID living in a flat. Um, you know, um, a, a relative of mine was in Dubai for the entire lockdown in a flat, and they had, you know, there was no, there was no let up for their lockdown. It was, you know. You you leave your room, you're getting arrested, kind of scenario. You know, they were very strict, I believe. Um, so you know, that was it. That was him locked in a locked in a one bedroom flat in an incredibly hot environment um, for for you know in a dry country as well. So that must have been crazy. That must have driven him mad. But um, tough, tough so, times. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to j- jump in for a second. One of the ironic kind of awakenings i think that a lot of people had is like oh this is what it's like being in prison now obviously it's a more gentle version don't get me wrong i mean you can't get you know alcohol delivered to your house in prison for example you probably can get drugs a lot easier than people realize but um you know but that idea that oh if we lock someone in the cage then when they get out they're going to be so much better this was a huge social experiment at the look at the Philadelphia model, which is what most people use, which is lock them up for X amount of you know hours a day. And I've had, as you know, guests on from you know the Norway prison system, for example, yeah. where they do it very differently, you know, and it's a community. They've lost their freedom, but they, they live in a house with several other prisoners. They cook, they clean, they go to school, they have a job, and so they leave a much better person than when they entered that facility. So have you had any discussions or perspectives of COVID and a real realization for the average person who's never been inside on the pros or cons of the way that we look at um, incarceration at the moment? Yeah. I mean, you know, just, it, it, even just from your comment, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, it's not, I, 
up until the point where you've just sort of mentioned it, a little bit of a light bulb sort of came on, and, and I hadn't really thought of it that way. Um, but it it is really indicative of how people do tend to react to anything, to anything where you're restricting it. You know, it's like I remember as a kid, you know, you had to give up something for Lent and then gorging yourself on Easter eggs like they were going out of fashion, making yourself ill. And, and it, but it's the same with anything. It's, it's why it's, it, it's why diets don't work. You know, it's because the minute, the minute the diet's over, you've lost the weight. It's like, ah, 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 I'm going to, you know, fill my face. And because that, unfortunately, unless you, unless you have extreme self-discipline, that is human nature, isn't it? You take something away. How long are you taking that away for? Because now I want it even more. I crave that thing that you tell me I can't have. Um, and, so now, you know, when when people came out, and as I said, I did see, I saw for myself, you know, the the kind of violence that an activity that occurred when people were suddenly let out after being locked up, and and the cause the crazy behaviour at, at, at um, I, li I live in Brighton, um, you know, by the sea, by the coast, and you know that one weekend, do you recall that one? Uh, you might not, but one weekend, Boris Johnson let people out. And it was a, uh, it was like the hottest weekend of the year. And he said, you know, don't go to the beaches. <laughs> it's like, yeah, of course, don't go to the beaches. And, you know, cut to on the news, you know, heads, as, you know, lilos as far as the eye can see. And, and, you know, ice creams and beaches never been so full. And, and, and I, I think, you know, that, that's human nature. And I, I, so as a result of that, it's a very interesting analogy that you draw with, with people going to prison because um, I, I think you're right. I, 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 look, from a law enforcement point of view, I, I, I'm not convinced prison works. You know, I, I, I know it does, it does part of what it's supposed to do in that, you know, if somebody's not safe to be around other people, please take them away from other people, you know, um, for a period of time. Um, uh, you know, but does it cure criminality? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> because if it did, we wouldn't have all the recidivists that, that we have. Um, I was determined to get the word recidivist in, by the way, because it. it's one of my favourite <laughs> words. I... Uh, I only learned the word recidivist when I was in the police, and I'm determined to use it as much as possible. But the whole idea of that repeat offender, you know, someone who just it, it, it's uh, it's an old statistic that people troop out that you know, eighty percent of the crime is committed by twenty percent of the people. But in my experience, that's kind of borne out. You know, it's always the same faces you see time and time again committing the crimes. Uh, one of the first things that happened to me, you know, when I was when I first joined the police and, um, you, you know, my tutor constable was puppy walking me around, as they call it, you know, um, field training officer. I think they call it in the States. And, uh, you know, and I remember we dealt with somebody and there wasn't quite enough to arrest them. So we, we knew they'd done we knew they'd done it, but we couldn't prove it kind of scenario. So, you know, I sent them on their way. And my, my Tudor constable turned around and said, don't worry, he'll come again. He'll come around again. And sure enough, you know, because that's, that's it. People just 
keep committing crime. And, you, you know, I mean, the other thing that always surprised me as well was that criminals weren't like they were in the movies, you know, where you had someone who was a, a burglar and that's all they did. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm Billy Burglar. I walk around with my stripy jersey and my bag marked swag. But I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a good, I'm a good, honest burglar and that's all I do. You know, it's like... Oh, you got me, Governor. They'll turn their hands when, yeah, exactly. It's a fair call. But, you know, they'll turn their hand to anything. It's not just, you know, they'll do this and that and the other thing and loads, you know. that. So, um, yeah. So uh, pr- does prison work? No. Does the criminal justice system work? Not really. I don't think in my, you know, I'm I'm dissing entire institutions here right now. I don't mean that. Of course, there are really good people that work in these institutions. There are really good people that work in these industries. Um that are really doing their best to rehabilitate criminals. They're really doing their best to prosecute the right people for the right crimes. But time and time again, unfortunately, we see how much, especially when you're on a sort of a user end of it, you know, I'm just at the practical end, you see how how much court is a game, you know, a game played between very well-paid barristers, um, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily about, justice and more about you know them them getting them getting the result they want and and if they're very good at what they do they will get people off you know and it's 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 that simple it's not it's not justice i don't think and i think in, in most justice systems we we see that in in most countries um i think you know i, I think we're very good at dealing with serious offenses um you know the, the serious things like murder and stuff like that we're very good at but the criminality that affects most people we're really bad at dealing with and low-level criminality and low-level criminals sticking them in prison doesn't fix anything because when they come out their um their situation hasn't changed in fact if anything it's probably got worse they're going to go back to living in the same place they were living before being surrounded by the same people that were surrounding them before they're going to return to that life unless you create a new life for them yeah, that's what it seems, you know, the, the Norwegian model, Bastoy, if people look that up, it's just uh just off Oslo. Um, you know, it's such it just makes perfect sense because, you know, whether it's addiction, whether it's crime, whatever it is, usually you can reverse engineer to, you know, things that have happened when we were younger or, you know, up to current day. And that's why people are like, Oh, why don't you just make good choices? Well, because if your whole world has kind of led you down bad choices. You don't just wake up one day and go, oh, I'm going to start meditating and then take long walks with my dog and you know, not be a criminal, you know? So, but you take someone who's found themselves or whatever path, and some of these people are, are murderers, but it's a crime of passion. It's not someone that woke up, you know, a sociopath. They came home and their wife was banging someone and, you know, they beat his ass to death or whatever happened, but it wasn't, yeah. you know, premeditated. It was... It was, again, you know, violence manifested through, you know, mental ill health. And at that moment went way too far. But they take these people and, like I said, they teach them how to live with other people. They, you have to cook. You have to clean. You know, you're going to school. You're educating yourself. You're learning a trade. You're doing hobbies, you know, music and art and whatever it is. So by the time you serve your sentence, because this is the thing that a lot of the people in, in corrections and law enforcement have told me, one day it was something like 90 or 95% of the prison population will move back into your neighborhood. So yep. what kind of person do you want moving back? You know, that's that's what we yep. have to ask ourselves. And as you said, there's a lot of great people in these systems. There are so many good teachers in America that work in a fucking awful system 
that asks eight-year-olds to sit in front of a computer and take a three-hour standardized test just so they can justify their budget. Nothing about the education of the child. So great teachers, horrible system. Prohibition of drugs, in my opinion, horrible fucking system. Asking, you know, police officers to chase down someone with a fucking, you know, one spliff in their pocket, you know, one one toke of marijuana and they're going to prison for years until they started changing him. So this is what we need to do is take a step back, put our hands up and say, you're right, this isn't working. And then go back to the, uh, the, the origin, the root. So with that being said, were there in your whole career, have you noticed any commonalities between the, the, the origin story, the root cause of why a lot of the men and women that you ended up interacting with had found themselves down this kind of path? Yeah, you know, it, it's and th- th- this is not going to um, be sort of news, I don't think, but it, it's um, the the same stories come round time and time again, and 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 those stories often involve not having good family units, um, you, you know, not not having, especially a father who's involved. I mean, I I, I know that that's happened an awful, awful lot and I know there's been a lot of research into that um but you know um but not having both parents not have and I'm not saying you can't have a great family with only one parent that's not what I'm saying but uh, I you know I've certainly noticed um a, a variety of things noticed where people have come from areas where there aren't many opportunities um you know I was immensely lucky and I I can't have fathomed what it must have been like I mean I know people for example um, I know people from certain parts of the UK, and I won't mention, you know, parts of the UK because I don't, I don't want to, you know, upset anyone. But certain parts of the UK where they said they had one of two options: option one was join the army, option two was become a criminal. You know, and and that for them, that's what it felt like. They were the only two options. Um, you, you know, get involved in local criminality, and and, and it. I tell you, it surprised me how much. Whilst I worked in an inner city for my for my whole career, when I had dealings outside, and when I started working um, with some of the county lines gang uh, gang related crime and stuff like that, you find out where the drug problems actually are. And what surprised me was, whilst the source of the drugs is one place, and whilst there's a lot of dealing going on in places like London, the drug use was all happening in these t- rural places, you know, these small, and you were like, really? I wouldn't have thought this place had a drug problem. And, of course, then you find out, well, what else is there to do? You know, it, it's a it's a poor environment. Um, there, there's, there's no work available. There's not, there's not many opportunities. So, but there are drugs. And also, you know, youngsters see and idolize people who make easy money selling drugs maybe it's not that easy money but you know they they, they see it as, a, as the only option um and so that's certainly one aspect of it is that are there other other options for these people for for people to do is there something else they can do or are they just getting caught up because you know the other thing is it is what are the people around you doing you know so many so many people far wiser than myself have said that 
you know, you are a product of the people around you, you know, and, and, and who do you spend your time with and who are your friends? And, and those are the people who do rub off on you. And I think it's absolutely true. It's certainly been my experience that, that you, you know, if, if you're in a place and you're surrounded and all your friends are into something, you know, you end up going down that road as well. It takes a lot of self-determination not to go down that road. Um, and, 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 so, as I say, n- nothing really new here, but a lot of the a lot of the stories were very much the same. You know, it's like I've I've come from you know uh, a, a poor background. There wasn't there weren't any opportunities, and those now you can get very cynical with it. And I, you know, uh, and uh, us police officers are very cynical, and you can start thinking, oh yeah, you know, I've heard this I've heard this tale before. Um, and whilst I'm sure there's a healthy, you know number of people who um it's a nice it's a nice easy not excuse but it's a it, it's a reason why i haven't succeeded i haven't you know because there is an element of effort and choice and and decisions and you you know we do have a say in in, in that and uh especially in this day and age i, I think where because I suppose the example I want to, I, I will always give is this, that, you know, I, I remember vividly talking to a, a, a family, um, a youngster, a young, a young man who was saying, you know, I've got nothing, I've come from nothing, you know, I, I'm, so I've got no choice other than, to, you, you know, these are my choices. And, um, and then you go and visit the house and there's a 50-inch TV screen and, uh, you know, all, all of it. Uh, 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 and there's loads of really nice things in the house, and then you you find out that the the house is provided by, you know, the the local council or local authority, or you, you know, so you you think, well, actually, you've got you've got a lot of support here um, if you wanted to take it, and and you know, I've noticed this even since since leaving the police, you know, and, and looking at. You, you know things to do and available things you know there's there's so many voluntary organizations even in my area where people are offering free services you know free courses free training free all kinds of things um you know to to to, to get people away from those lives so there are options but it is it seems to be the standard thing and look hey i'm i'm really you know i'm not a psychologist i i don't have I don't have real reasons. It's just, just, just things you observe from being at the uh, at the coal face, I guess. Well, I think, but that's an important perspective. You know, they have the academics, and then you have the boots on the ground. And the answer is obviously to get those two minds together and get a full overview of what we're seeing. And I think just to counter this proactivity, this this you know, getting to the root cause, changing the way we do it. One of the biggest oppositions is this bullshit victim mentality that's also pervasive at the moment well you're not seeing me i'm i'm a cat and i need a litter box in my school or you know it's so hard being this color or this race when it's 2023 and each individual has different experiences but i would argue that i mean the the britain that i grew up in and loved has always been extremely diverse and i hear yeah. you know i mean i've I've, <laughs> I've literally been on walks where we've been you know, me and, and, a, and a mixed group of you know, racially mixed group of people did the, I think it was like a 13 mile ruck to the source of this massacre that we had that was absolutely a racist attack a long time ago. And one of the 
the women that we were walking with, a young black woman was just talking about how America was built on racism and everyone's racist. And I'm like, this was initiated by a white dude that we're, we're hiking with. There's white dudes, there's an Indian woman, there's, there's always different ethnicities. And we're pulled together by injustice of something that happened a long time ago and never needs to be forgotten. But, you know, look around. Your music stars, your, you know, your sports stars, your politicians, your, your, your actors, everyone around you is, is diverse. So stop fucking trying to dredge up this. It's so hard. Yes, we did some horrible shit in our past. And the UK is like the yep. perfect example of exploitation and, you know, just horrible, horrible things our ancestors did. But this is today. We have an opportunity to change it in the now. And we do yep. not sweep it under. You don't change the history books and, you know, pull down statues. If that was a guy who was a slave trader, fucking leave it up. Put a big sign going, this wanker, let me tell you about him and yeah. leave it there. But this that, poor me yeah. bullshit is, is the actual opposition to moving forward. This defund the yeah. police is an op opposition to hiring more police officers that are well-trained yeah. and fit and, you know, going to be a much more proactive force so this this whole victim thing to me is so toxic as well yeah and and just just picking up on what you said about the whole defund the police thing um now when i i joined the police in uh sort of end of 2001 and my starting salary when i joined the police and and granted it was with london waiting because you get a little bit more if you work in london because of the cost of living there um, I was on about £26,000, and that was sort of, yeah, 2001, right? Um, if I join the police today, some 22 years later, I'm on £19,500. Really? Yeah. Now, again, a little bit more if you work in London, and it goes up once you finish your training and all that kind of stuff. But can you explain how... 22 years later i'd be on less to do the same job with all the years of inflation that have gone between and you uh, and you expect me to believe that they're going to get the people as good and I, this is not being derogatory to people who join the police now but what i'm saying is you, you know if you're if you're offering less money and i'm a really good candidate but i've got two options i can go into this career which pays well and is something I'm interested in. Um, and I've got this career, which doesn't pay as well, but I'm still interested in. Which one have I got to go for? You know, which one am I going for? Unless you start sacrificing so much to, to join a job and not, and not get what you're paid. I mean, I don't know how they can survive on that, on that kind of money. So, so the whole defund the police thing is, is really going to affect us in, in that, you know, who is going to join? Surely, if you, you know, I'm not saying you want to be paid a crazy amount of money, but when I joined, it was a decent wage. So you could afford to live in London. You know, no one can afford to live in London now, certainly not on that salary. So you're now making the whole thing worse because now you have to live hours out of London. So now I'm getting less sleep because I have to, be, I mean, even when I was working in London and Brighton's not very far away, I was up at half past four every morning, you know, to get to work. And that's two hours to work and two hours to get home. Um, and then you do a 10 or a 12 hour shift. And then you, when you get home, you've got to eat and sleep and decompress. Then you're getting this much sleep. You know, 
people don't realize the knock-on effects of not paying people enough because the other thing that's gone away that used to exist is you know there's no police accommodation anymore they've got rid of all of the uh you know, police housing and, and, and section houses and all those things have gone now. You can't, you know, when I joined the police, there were section houses and you could, you could live in London for, a, you know, not very much money at all. I think it was something ludicrous, like nine, eight, nine pounds a night or something like that. You could, you could stay in these section houses. Um, you know, all of that's gone. Um, you know, free travel for police officers is, is now pretty much gone. Um, you know, they the uh, if you're in the Metropolitan Police now, you have to pay for your travel. You don't have to pay um, the full amount, but you're paying out of your salary to get your free travel. Now, I realise that's a massive perk that you get a discount on your travel, but of course, you need they need officers working in Central London, and we can't afford now with the pay to live in Central London, so it's subsidised travel, but you're still paying for it when you know. Not that long ago, when I joined, the travel was free. So you could afford to live a little bit further out to get the best bang for your buck. So th there's been so many things that have eroded the, uh, for one of a better phrase, the perks. But they're not, they weren't all perks. But the, the, the things that came along with being a police officer that made the job doable um, for the salary you were being paid, that all of those have gone now. And, and so it's making it harder and harder to recruit the right people um, uh, and, 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 and get the best people for the job in my opinion. Staying with your opinion, because this will be an opinion, but you know, we all are fully aware that all of the good arrests, for example, don't make social media. You know what I mean? All the, you know, the, the whatever, tens and tens and tens and tens percent of, of things, calls that go well, you know, person just, yeah, okay, you know, put the cuffs on me, I'm good. But there have been a lot of videos, especially from the UK, where... You know, you've got several police officers struggling with one individual. And as a martial artist and as someone who's been, you know, in strength and conditioning my whole life, just with a coach's eye, you can say, okay, these people have not done strength and conditioning. They do not have, you know, any sort of kind of grappling experience. This is an extremely dangerous situation. So with your perspective, talk to me about what have you seen since, you know, 2001, the uptick or downtrend of that element of policing in the UK. So you've opened the can now, haven't you? You've opened the can of worms. You've, you've opened the door, you've rolled the grenade in and closed the door. <laughs> right. Clear it so, up. Yeah. The, um, in the last two years um, that I was in the police, um, I, uh, my role changed significantly whilst I was still operational. Um, I was put in charge of use of force um and because of my role as an instructor for personal safety and taser and various things so i i i ran monitoring all use of force and so what i was asked to do was because one of the things that changed is we all had to wear body worn video so every police officer in the country body worn video that really was a game changer for us because in the world of defensive tactics or officer safety call it what you will a safe arrest for the public and the police we only really had anecdotal evidence of, of what was going on out there because what you're supposed to do every time you are involved in an incident that involves a use of force, however minor, you were supposed to fill out a form, right? And you just a ticky box form and you'd send it in and it would go into the black hole of nothing. And, uh, you, you, you know, 
you'd never hear the rest of it. Now, what was supposed to happen with those forms is someone like me was supposed to look at them all and see what was working and what wasn't working. Well, of course, the forms only reflected what the officer thought that they'd done, not what actually happened. Um, so what we did on my, and I can't take all the credit for it, it wasn't my idea, or I should say it was, but what, what my role became and my team was to watch every single piece of body-worn video footage that involved the use of force and look at it from the point of view of are there any lessons that can be learned here? Is there any training that's required from the officer? Um, you know, is there anything that could have been done better? Not to not to play the blame game, not to point fingers or anything like that, but to improve things. Um, and also, yeah, to help with investigations, to help with complaints against police, to help with, you know, coroner's inquests in the event of, of serious incidents and stuff like that. So I suppose what I'm saying is, um, myself and my colleagues have watched more body-worn video of police officers rolling around on the floor with people in the last couple of years than, than probably most people. Uh, it's like, it's like uh, we used to joke, it's like world's wildest police chases and I get paid for it, you know. <laughs> um, but as a result of that, uh, I was quite shocked um, with what was happening. Um, and, um, you know, several of my colleagues didn't last long doing that role because, you know, I used to bring in other instructors to for a few months to help me watch the video. Um, and they got quite despondent because, it, it, you know, they were shrugging their shoulders going, doesn't anybody do what we teach them? Is What's the point? What's the point in teaching this stuff? And, and there was a lot of argument of is the stuff we're teaching, all the techniques, everything we teach, is it fit for purpose? And my argument was, there's nothing wrong with what we teach. Isn't they're not doing it. They're not doing what we teach. Yes, there are. We do need to change what we teach, potentially. You know, we, we've got a, a manual of millions of techniques of six inches thick. It's all online now. But, you know, this huge, big tome of all these techniques. And really, it probably should be a handful of techniques that they can do well. But it's not, you know, so that. And I know there's a lot of change going on at the moment at high levels, people looking at, at massively reducing or changing the training. But in my opinion, I think it needs to, they need to go back to the drawing board further than that. But that's just, my, you know, again, my opinion, because we've had a massive degradation in our physical culture. You know, I, I played sport at school. I, you know, we ran around in the playground. We climbed trees. We had a very physical upbringing. Um, and that just, uh, you, you know, speaking anecdotally, it doesn't seem to, people don't seem to have similar experiences now coming into the police. Also coming into the police, two things tended to happen. So I joined quite late. You know, I was in my late twenties before I joined. Um, and I was not the oldest in my intake. Young people, when they applied to join the police were quite often told, yeah, go away, get some life experience, then come back. Now the average age of new recruits, well, uh, <laughs> it frightened me. Just before I left, I was speaking to a new group of recruits, doing some training with them, and it turns out that the boots I was wearing were older than one of the students I was teaching. Uh, you know, and uh, 
when you when you get to the point where you join the police before some of these people were born, that's when you think I am old. But um, but because the, you know they're joining the police now at nineteen years old, and that's quite common. Well, certainly in my force, that was quite common. Um, and over fifty percent of the force were probationers, so in their first two years, and and I think it was somewhere around sixty odd percent. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, no, forty percent were in the probation and around 60% less than five years. So you've got a really inexperienced workforce. You've had a massive degradation in our physical culture um, where most people, and, and, and now, um, you know, uh, our, our force, my old force, has abolished the fitness test. So no fitness test requirement um, now. So, uh, you know, that, that blew my mind. Um, uh so uh so now you, you you know people aren't as fit as they used to be because they're not don't have those physical lifestyles people aren't playing sport you've just come out of two years of covid where people haven't been able to train and go to gyms um you've got a different group of people as well because what they're now certainly in my old organization they because of well again i don't want to speak out of turn but this, there was a very real move away from hiring anyone who was ex-military. They didn't want ex-military people, and I don't, I don't know why. Um, you know, I, 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 I can, I can make a few assumptions, but they didn't want ex-military people. They wanted academics. They want so obviously now in the UK you have to have a degree to join the police, or you have to go through a degree process um, to be in the police. Um, so it all becomes very much an academic um, process and they're very keen on their exams. And they're very keen on, on being intellectually very capable. And unfortunately, I, like, I, I think whilst there is a real place for, you know, academic learning and ability and because at least 50 percent of the job is understanding the law. And understanding procedure and, and being able to take good statements and be eloquent and I'm out, but, um, you know, be eloquent and, and, you know, be able to argue your, your case in court, be able to, you know, articulate what occurred, be able to present people to, to custody sergeants and book people into custody. So you, you need a good understanding of that. You need to, to, you know, you need to have a certain, um, intellectual capacity. However, the other 50% of the job is being a thug. That sounds wrong, but do you know what I mean? There, there is, it's there blue, is it's blue collar, of, isn't it? It's, it's, I'm yeah, thinking this just a, on my drive today. Our professions, yours and mine, it's like we've got one foot in the professional and one foot in blue collar, and proudly so, yeah. because there's yeah. times, like as a firefighter paramedic, you know, I'm doing basically surgeon stuff on the street, and there's other yep. times where we're rolling hose and cleaning rigs and we're absolutely doing grunt work. And that's a beautiful thing about yep. what we do. But a, a degree alone of which I have one, you know, I've, ne I've never been on a fire where it's like, can I see your qualifications? Yes, I have a diploma in exercise science and fitness evaluation. Okay, I, <laughs> yeah. I shall extinguish myself. You, thank you, good sir. Good day. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> But that's it. And, and so, I mean, the story I always tell, and forgive me if I've told you this one before, but um, years ago, 
I was um, uh, on patrol um, at uh, uh, Leicester Square in central London. And there was a great, there was a, a, a load of disorder. I, I, I won't bore you with why, but just loads and loads of youths fighting, hundreds of youths all turned up in the same place for a great big fight. Um, and um, there were a couple of uh, my colleagues from the Metropolitan Police stranded in the middle of Leicester Square and they called urgent assistance. So they'd been surrounded by this gang of youths. It turned into this massive fight. They'd drawn their batons. That was pretty much all we had back then. And they were, you know, literally sort of fighting, uh, uh, fighting the, uh, the crowd off. They called urgent assistance. Unfortunately, I was just around the corner with my colleague in a car. So we were the first responding officers. You know, we drove into Leicester Square, jumped out the car, ran into the middle of Leicester Square. And we were all four of us back to back um, and so totally surrounded. So batons were drawn and we're just literally trying to, you know, keep people back. So we're just swinging batons around. Um, cut long story short, you, you know, we were we were in big trouble. We were in big trouble. And um, just then a van turned up from the TSG. The TSG is the Metropolitan Police Territorial Support Group. Um, they used to joke and call them the thick and stupid group, TSG, but um, they're not <laughs> at all. They're not not at all, right? Uh, I've done public order policing. The the TSG are absolutely, well, they certainly were absolutely the top of their game. I'm sure they are still very good. Um, but, you know, back then, so we're talking sort of the early, early 2000s, they were the biggest, scariest police officers you ever want to meet. And this van turned up. So it's called the Commissioner's Reserve. And there is always a full PSU, a full police support unit of the Commissioner's Reserve available in London at any one time. The Commissioner's Reserve rolled up, and that's actually three public order vans. Um, and I remember that, and I, I'm probably exaggerating now, but, you know, why let the truth get in the way of a good story? Um, but um, so I, I just have this image in my head of this van pulling up the side door on this, the sliding door slid open on the side of this, you know, uh, white van. And out jumped this enormous behemoth of a, of a, of a police officer. Um, and in my head, I still remember he picked up a bloke and was holding him by his leg, using him to cut <laughs> through the crowd. <laughs> I, 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 it was like Samson with the jawbone of an ox, you know, like hacking his way. Through. But I swear he was swinging a bloke around, sort of cutting his way through the crowd. And I was bodies flying left, right, and centre as they fought their way through to us and and and, and rescued us, basically. Um, and and I thought from that day on, I thought, you see, you always need that. You can be as intellectual as you like. You can be as good. You can be a really good investigator. You can be a top level detective. But, you know, every now and then you need an in case of emergency break glass. You want to hit that break glass and you want those beasts to come out and dig you out the shit. Because, and I'm sorry to say, you know, you need those guys. You need those guys and girls. You need them to come and rescue you sometimes. And, and, it can't all be about academic smarts. It's half of the picture, but it's certainly not all of it. 
So just before we transition, because I want to get to the knife crime um, issue next. But with that being said, so you, you're reviewing these body cams. There seems to be, well, there is a an abolition of fitness standards, which, by the way, is fucking insanity. And then you have this academic heavy that we see in the fire service, too. Oh, you want to promote to chief? Well, you need to get your degree. Well, again, you know, your degree in business management or whatever you chose is not going to help you when you're outside of school shooting and you're the you know, the fire um, IC, for example. But anyway, that aside, bringing solutions to problems. You're king for a day now. With British policing, what needs to be done on the fitness side and what needs to be done on the defensive tactics side? <clears throat> so first off, I believe there has to be a fitness standard to get into the police service. Why? Because the job is a physical job. Um, regardless of what role you do. Now, I grant you, you know, at some point you might go into investigations and you could argue, you know, why do detectives need to be able to run to fitness standards? But I think a base level of fitness standards is important for everything because we've had just as many stories of detectives being attacked in home addresses when they've gone around to arrest somebody. They had no idea it was going to happen and all of a sudden it's gone wrong for them. So, because at any time, at any time, and, and we've all seen terrorist attacks where it's all hands to the pumps and everyone's required to do a job. And I think the public expect a standard of us. So for me, 100%, you need to have a fitness standard. Have a fitness standard that is a proper job-related fitness test. When we joined, it was a proper job-related fitness test. It wasn't just run backwards and forwards. It was grip strength. It was upper body strength. It was, you know... Um, running around at speed and agility. It was a variety of things, much more related to the job you're being asked to do. Um, and then being asked to maintain that. It's not too much to ask. We ask them to maintain their academic standards with exams. We should ask them to maintain physical fitness standards. Um, and if you're not there before you join the job, you should raise your game to get to that point. So the first thing is fitness standards without a doubt. I think the second thing is training that is very much fit for purpose. One of the things that has massively changed over the years is our over-reliance on e-learning packages. And the more you speak to people in a variety of industries, everything has become an e-learning package. And why? Because that provides a tick in the box for the organization. Look, I can prove everyone in the organization has done their health and safety manual handling training because here's the tick in the box. Aha. Do people really understand that? Have they, you know, and, and whilst e-learning might be okay for manual handling or how to use a computer screen without getting a headache, um, can you do an e-learning package for defensive tactics or or driving or, you, you know, you can't. Obviously, you can't. And I know we don't currently, but, but it's starting to get ridiculous what they're asking you to do e-learning packages for. Things where... Historically, you need face-to-face instruction. And, and perhaps that, uh, you know, the answer is a combination of the two. I don't know. But I think certainly let's get back. And I, because I'm a trainer, I'm quite passionate about that. Let's have a real person there who can explain it to you. When you go, no, I don't understand that. Can you please explain how that works? Or can you show me this? Yes, I can. I can, I can explain it in a different way. So don't over-rely on... Oh, it's training, 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 I think is the look, the military, the military train all the time and deploy 
a fraction of that time. The police do it the wrong way round. We deploy all the time and then don't do any training. And the only training they're interested in is, and this is the phrase that's bandied around in the police all the time, minimum standards. We have minimum standards of investigation. We have minimum standards of, of trial. Oh, what's the minimum requirement here? What's the, what's the minimum I need to do to pass or to achieve this? We should be striving for the best. And, and as a result of that, perhaps, you know, so we need, oh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record. So, and, and every industry wants this, don't they? They all want more pay, they all want more people. You know, I think it's just about, you know, getting the right people for the job um, because time and time again, I see people currently and I'm asking them, are you sure you're in the right job? You know, you, you do know what you signed up for, don't you? This, there's an element of physicality in this. There's an element of this. There's an element of that. Um, so it's getting the right people for the job, paying them what they're worth. Holy moly, you know, pay people what they're worth, pay people for the risks that they're asked to take. Um, and the sacrifices that they make, um, you know, it, it, you know, I, I just before I retired, I got my long service medal, and actually, my wife deserves the long service medal, not me, for having to put up with, you know, because it's the family and the support structure that that you need to get through all of that, and you, you know, so therefore, I suppose the working environment needs to be better. So you've got to pay people what they're worth and support them. Give if you're not going to pay people what they're worth, then at least give them a good working environment, good support structure. Uh, um, you know, for example, and I know this is going to sound really bad now, but you know, with the greatest respect, we had some very good occupational health nurses, but they were never available. You know, the uh, occupational health was an end, was a bottomless pit. You'd send emails, you'd never get anything back. Why? Because they were so snowed under. Because there were, you know, at one point it dropped to like two people in the department for for a, a police force of three and a half thousand officers, and then on top of that, other people. You know, it, it, it's crazy. You know, so you you need that support, and more and more people need good occupational health, and not because you know you're you're calling them up going. Oh yeah, I get vertigo in thick socks, or you know, <laughs> oh, I, I, you know, I heard something on the radio. I've been traumatized by it. You know, come on, you know, have a little bit of, of you know, backbone. You know, we we need a little bit of that. I'm I'm sorry to say, you know, you're joining a job where you need a little bit of fortitude. Do it, and so it's it's about picking the right people, giving them the right training. We're quite lucky with equipment in the UK. I'll be honest. On the whole, I, I, I have no real whinges about equipment, not in my organisation anyway, um, and not in what I did. I was very lucky. Firearms gets the lion's share, so I, I, you know, I know my colleagues in other departments will go, "We get nothing," uh, you know, buying their, they're buying their own trousers. I don't but, even um, get thick socks to get vertigo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't even get vertigo in my thick socks. I don't get um, so. Um, uh, so yeah. Pick the right people, give them what they're worth, look after them and give them the training that they need. Um, and, and, the, and here's the thing. The other thing is understand that the most important people, I think in any organisation, but certainly in the police, are the ones that are out there facing the public and not necessarily the ones in command, not necessarily the ones, you know, sitting behind desks and and doing all the support stuff and whilst that's really important work 
I often got the impression that my job existed to support the support staff, and not the other way around. You know, um, it it and, and that, I'm going to get some hate mail for that, but I, I I just mean that where all your money needs to go and all your, and all of your concentration needs to go is on the officer that interacts with the public because that's the one officer that can make or break that person's experience that can make or break that person's understanding or belief that the police are actually any good or do what they want to do in the first place you know it so those are the people you need to invest in and sadly who are those people that are the responders the first responders in the police they are your most inexperienced and your youngest with the least service because the minute you've get got a bit of experience in the police, in order to get away from the horrendous shifts and horrendous workload of being on basic response duties, you leave and join a specialisation. So you go into firearms or public order or become a detective or whatever, because being a basic patrol officer is horrendous. The workload is overwhelming. You have case files in your tray piling up. Um, you can't keep on top of it all. Um, you know, it's just, it, they get no support. They don't get case building teams or anything like that. You know, there are so many things that you could do to improve their, their job and make their job better. And therefore, maybe people would want to stay in a response role because they are the pointy end. Your basic patrol response officers do all the work. I used to keep saying this when we would turn up at as a firearms unit and they go, oh, thanks for coming. Um, you, know, you know, oh, you've bailed us out. I'm like, no, you do the hard work. We just turn up with the dangerous luggage and, uh, you know, and then everyone thinks we're the cool ones. No, all the cool work is done by the officers on the ground facing the initial threat. They're the ones that, that solve the problems that save lives. All of us doing the support stuff, you know, we just get to wear the Gucci kit. So I had a police officer from Massachusetts, Chuck DiChiara, and kind of mirroring what you were saying with the capturing of the Boston bombers, it was he was giving credit. He's like, yeah, the SWAT was there. Like, we were all responding. He said, but it was the frontline, you know, police officers on the street that were really um, doing most of the legwork and, and the ones that actually interacted with these people. So it's interesting, you know, obviously all the way across the Atlantic, you're an armed response officer yourself and having the same thing, which again underlines the importance of having the best people out there. I mean, there's a, a video floating around at the moment of a, a, a woman who was accused of not paying her um, fee on a bus. And there's a whole bunch of police officers trying to arrest her and her little boy is crying. And again, optics, it looks horrendous. I don't know the full story. I wasn't there. I'm simply a dude looking at it on a phone. But it appears, and if I read it right, it was actually incorrect and she had paid her fare in the first place. But I mean, just absolutely horrible to watch. So again, you've got the acute, you know, trying to stop a terrorist on a London bridge, or you've got the interacting with a very, very mild, you know, case. Either way, one point you've got to be, you know, an operator. The other point, other side, you've got to be kind, compassionate, take a step back and actually look at the whole story. Yeah, 100%. You know, I, I used to see it all the time where, you know, you'd see a really minor job and they'd be surrounded by police officers. And, and I used to go up to 
officers all the time and go, you know, and they weren't even on my unit. Uh, they must hate me for it. I, they go, sorry, what? what's this job? And they go, oh, yeah, for example, they haven't, got, they haven't bought a train ticket or they, you know, or it's, I don't know, some, something really minor. And I'm like, what are you all doing here then? Because this looks terrible. Can you all just go away? You know, do you need to have 50 people, you know, five officers surrounding this one person, regardless uh, of what it is? You know, I I'm not being funny. Uh, unless this is a terrorist attack, why do you need so many officers surrounding one person? It's just, it looks terrible. And also then it begs the, the question, well, why are there never any cops there when I need them? Um, if, if when a job happens that, that you know, there's, there's five of you there. I mean, it always used to happen, though, um, where, you know, when the radio would, would spark up and some weary job would come out over the radio, you know, any unit, you know, it's a, it's a routine call to something really weary. There'd be like silence on the crickets. <laughs> um, and no one wanted to go to that. And then all of a sudden it was like, uh, oh, yeah, any unit, immediate grade call, you know, man with a knife or, yes, we're all available. You know, all of a sudden <laughs> everyone's everyone's available because it sounds a bit more exciting but uh yeah it, but it, it is it's um it, it it is a problem it is a problem with how we're perceived and i don't think people understand that quite so much in the job um you know sometimes especially people younger in service and one without going on about the people younger in service i used to talk to a lot of officers and say bear in mind you have only policed a pandemic you know so we're talking about officers now. When you consider that forty odd percent of officers are in their probation, you know that means they've only policed the pandemic. You know, I know we're out of it now, and we're out of it for a little while. But you, you know, so a, a lot of their service has been their all their training and all their initial years were during a pandemic when there were no people on the streets. So they've got a very different view of uh, of uh, of what it is, and, and I I certainly noticed you know, issues w with that um, because people were overreacting to situations that that a, a lot of more ex experienced colleagues would just go, that's nothing, relax, you know, it's not, this is not serious, you know, this, don't worry about it, um, you know, and I think I think that's one of the things that can happen when with a lack of exposure to stuff is you, you think minor things are far more serious than they are. Absolutely. Well, you talked about showing up, you know, with your very dangerous luggage, as you said. When I went home the end of last year to do the recce for 7X, we met up and I got to see the armory, which as an Englishman, I mean, now it was no big deal because I'm surrounded by guns. It's America. But before, it would have blown my mind to go into this little, you know, locker in the middle of London and see all the weapons that you guys carry and, and you know, we got to see some of the shift change going on. And um, like you said, some of the very physically intimidating men and women that you work alongside. Um, so talk to me about guns in general, um, where there was a, a high profile case a little while ago, Matthew Ratana, for example, you know, when you think of the UK, there's almost a, a danger of being too complacent because we hardly ever see a gun. I grew up around guns on a farm. We had shotguns and my dad had a rifle when we went hunting up in Scotland. But aside from that, you know, you don't. And I, I think maybe we spoke about this last time. The only time I ever saw a pistol was some dude walking into a pub and in Hampstead of all places um, and kind of, you know, it was sticking out of his wrist, wrist, uh, waistband, you know, obviously trying to trying to project the kind of tough guy image. But, um, you know, Matthew was in 
a jail. They had someone in custody, and uh, you know the the search wasn't done correctly, and they ended up getting shot by an antique pistol. So you you know you are the men and women that are called when you know this kind of incident happens. Talk to me about just the firearm issue in the UK. Is it getting worse? And then the optic of armed police in the UK. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I didn't, I didn't know Matt Ritana. Um He was a, a for those of you who don't know. I mean, he was in, in the press a lot. He was a custody sergeant in, in Croydon. I've been into that custody, and I have no doubt I'd, I'd sort of interacted with him at, at some point but I didn't know him personally and I wasn't there when the incident happened although I was on duty and there was a huge um ripples went you know went across London um instantly pretty much um and um because that that hit us all really really hard um because that doesn't happen um officers getting shot is very very rare a, a custody sergeant being killed in custody wow um you know and it raised a number of questions and i, I you know i'm not here to criticize people at all you know because as i say I, I wasn't there and i don't know what happened prior to that person getting into custody but what i can say is that obviously the the norm is that people are searched before they are taken into custody and they usually searched if they've if they've been an interaction in the street by the time they get to custody they've probably been searched multiple times perhaps in the initial interaction perhaps when they're put into the police vehicle ordinarily um and then prior to coming into custody um you, you know and um so it was a real shock uh when that happened but i think for me one of the things that made it understandable is the wrong word but i was not surprised was because all the time people are smuggling things into into custody um you know we've we always used to show a piece of footage of someone with a huge machete that had it down their trousers and they got all the way into custody and um they're standing opposite the custody sergeant and they put out this huge huge machete um, you know, and attack the custody sergeant with it. Uh, and you, you, you thought, how can this be? And I think certainly with firearms, I think one thing is true is that we don't have a gun culture in the UK. Um, as a result of that, you know, there are very, very few cases in the UK where you are going to, even in London, where you as a random, a regular police officer are going to come in, into contact with someone with a gun. And nine times out of ten, if a gun is seen um, or a firearm is seen, and we believe, you know, we always assume it's a viable firearm until we can prove otherwise, it will be a dedicated firearms unit that will go to that. So that tells you something about the frequency of firearms crime in the UK, it is that we have specialist units that respond to it. You know, you couldn't do that in America at all, you know. And I, 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 I take my hat off to American police officers because – Every single call you go to is a firearms job um, because everyone could have a gun. Um, and I think the problem we have in the UK is that we don't assume that everyone could have a gun because it's so rare. So the default is, well, I've never 
seen a gun in my career, so therefore the chances of this, this person having a gun very low. So you default to that. It's more likely that they haven't got a gun. That complacency kicks in because it's not common. It's, it's very, very fortunately very rare. So as a result of that, you're not expecting it. And I used to hammer this all the time to police officers, hammer it. I got sick to death of it because I used to say, you must work to the 100% rule. And that is that 100% of people are carrying a concealed weapon until you prove otherwise. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to use force on them. It doesn't mean you've got an excuse to go and hit someone with a bat and say, well, you know, Sergeant Dave said everyone's got to have a... No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is treat them as if they have got one so therefore, you're using caution, you're being careful, you're maintaining a good reactionary gap, you're keeping an eye on their hands, you're checking properly for places where they could have a concealed weapon. And when you are have searched them thoroughly and you're satisfied, then still bear in mind that they can hit you or headbutt you or knee you in the groin, you know. So you still want to be mindful of that. And I think, unfortunately, that mindset does not um, prevail. And, and it certainly doesn't pervade people's people's minds. And there, there was a story from the United States, <clears throat> excuse me, that I always used to quote. And I wish I I wish I knew the validity of it or the source of it. But I'm going to tell you anyway, um, because I, I still tell the tale, you know, in, and that is a story from the United States where a police officer. Uh, well, a, a suspect went out to kill a police officer. Right. And sadly, they managed to kill a police officer and then they handed themselves in. And when they handed themselves into the police, having killed the police officer, uh, they were searched. And when they were searched, they were found to have a speeding ticket from that day. And they said to the suspect, why didn't you kill the police officer? If you set out today to kill a police officer, why didn't you kill the police officer who gave you the speeding ticket? And he said, because I didn't get the chance to. So for me, that shows a really important mindset of that original officer who stopped him for speeding. He didn't give him the opportunity to kill him, even though he had the intent. So all the evil intent in the world doesn't matter if you don't give them the opportunity. And I think, unfortunately, we forget that sometimes and we give people the opportunity because most of our interactions in the UK are benign interactions. We're quite safe. We interact with people. We're polite to them. They're polite to us. It's a fair cop. You know, we don't have too many problems with a lot of people. If we have problems with people, it tends to be what I refer to as or what, what we in the police in the UK call active resistance. Someone goes, no, you're not arresting me. And it's them pulling away and trying to resist an arrest. Yes, we do get people attacking police officers, but nine times out of 10, it's at the point of arrest and they're trying to prevent themselves getting arrested or they're having a bit of a fight. You know, the the instances where police officers are stabbed or shot are very few and far between, I'm glad to say. But of course, that breeds complacency. And that, I believe, is why we miss all the time. We miss these weapons. We miss them in searches because, you know, officers don't clearly... Well, clearly we don't search properly because if we searched properly, we'd, we'd find them before they got anywhere near anybody. And that doesn't happen. 
So, you know, and it only takes them to be lucky once, doesn't it, and get into custody. We've, we've got to be consistently good, and we're all human beings, and we all have an off day. We all don't. But that's why you need to have multi-tiered approaches to these things and have lots of searches and not just make do with one officer searching. And I've been there, and I'm sure any colleagues out there listening have been there when you, you know, you turn up to provide prisoner transport and you say, has he been searched? And the officer goes, yeah, yeah, he's been searched. He's fine. And you go, all right. And you stick him in the back of the van and you get to custody, you know, and, and everyone's working on that. Oh, has he been searched? Oh yeah, yeah, he's been searched. It's all, it's all fine. So, you know, someone, someone's done it. Oh, really? Who did it and how good was it? You know, was it thorough? So I think this is the problem is that we get complacent because whilst knives are very, very common, we don't get many officers stabbed, thankfully. Guns are very uncommon and we have even fewer officers shot, thankfully. Um, so we don't expect to see it. And because we don't expect to see it, we're not looking for it. Whereas in the States, and I know. Unfortunately, there have been cases in the States where because you are expecting it, perhaps when someone is reaching for something that is not a gun, they get a bad response because the officer is expecting it. So it is that expectation dictating outcome. And it's one of my favorite phrases. Expectation dictates outcome. You, If you can fill your mind with this is definitely going to happen, then lo and behold, you can make that happen. Um, so you've got to be really careful of that. And whilst you've got to be prepared for there to be a weapon, you know, um, you've got to, you, you, you can't act as if it's there when it's not. You just need to be cautious and be prepared for the fact that one might be there um, and, and keep yourself safe. So it's a scary thing for fire and EMS. And we just had a New York, um, I think she was a paramedic, stabbed in the back of the ambulance multiple times. It's, it's a harrowing video. She kind of steps out the side door and then lays on the ground just screaming. I mean, she's just been stabbed. Um, but, you know, because we can't just pat someone down a lot of times, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're going to do a primary, secondary assessment. And hopefully you can just kind of make sure that you're being safe then. But even when we approach a home, you know, I mean, we, I, we always knock from the side of the door because you never know here yeah. there have been paramedics yeah. shot on the doorstep sometimes by accident by someone freaking out thinking you know they're, they're paranoid schizophrenic and they think the aliens are coming to get them other times they're yeah. just horrible horrible anti you know establishment people that lure medics or firefighters to a, their homes with a fire or whatever it is and then shoot them so it's a really uh you know it's a gray area for us because we don't have yeah. the ability to to restrain someone while we pat them down and make sure they're safe before you know they jump in the back of our ambulance and 99 times out of 100 it's going to be fine but occasionally yeah. we don't know if that person's got a knife or a gun or you know and again this this particular one when uh when Matt was murdered it was a shoulder holster so under the arm yeah so for us to be able to find that as a paramedic if someone's going to sit in there with their arms crossed or whatever we're not even going to see it so I think, you know, that expectation, expect the worst, you know, train for the worst, expect the best kind of thing. And when you first interact with someone, especially fire and EMS, we have to remind ourselves because we're not going into that scene thinking this person's trying to kill us. But sometimes they might be. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've been to an awful lot of ambulance crews calling for assistance. Um, and it's a it's a worrying trend because 
I, I don't know whether you do in the States, but ambulance crews in London wear body armor. You know, it, it's, I mean, not all of them do, but, you know, and I don't know how available it is, but I see a lot of, a lot of LAS paramedic crews wearing, wearing body armor. Um, um, but it is a real, a real problem, um, you, you know, with, with people attacking them in the back of ambulances. Well, because what can you do? You, you know, you can't, you can't search, you can't search people and, and, people are very very unpredictable um and by the you know calling for police assistance um is, is too late by the time we get there you know it's it it's it's a worrying it's a worrying trend and we had a couple of just before the pandemic we had a really bad summer where a lot of ambulance paramedics have been targeted with acid attacks parked up in an ambulance with the window wound down because it was hot and in the summer um and people with um you know, plastic water bottles filled with acid squirting in their face. Can you explain that? You know, I, I mean, police officers were attacked in the same way, but I, I, I get that people don't like police. I don't understand why people would hate paramedics and want to throw acid in the face of a paramedic. It makes no sense to me at all. Well, with the disturbing trends, again, another thing that seems to be growing, and there's one Instagram page I follow, I think it's like Farinex Paul, and he shows all of these knife attacks that we see in the uk so talk to me about that so that's that's the one thing we do have unfortunately more than our fair share of so our knives are america's firearms i think um in that knives are available anywhere you know you can go into any pound shop and buy and buy a knife you can order knife and and, and all the legislation in the world doesn't stop that you can you can put as much legislation as you like to say you know it's an offensive weapon you can't own it you can't carry one in the street it doesn't stop people what it stops it stops law-abiding people doing things like most laws do um but it doesn't stop uh, criminals doing it um as and and also you know i think the other thing is a lot of a lot of people, especially youngsters who are, who carry, let's face it, you know, my experience has been a lot of young people carrying knives. And they don't have any understanding of the damage they cause by stabbing somebody in the locations where they stand. Them. You know, they think, oh, it's OK. You know, I'll scare him by stabbing him in the, you know, in the buttocks or in the groin or in the leg. You know, that will be uh, that will be scary, but it won't kill them because they've watched too much TV um, or I, you know, I'll just slash them or, or I won't stab them very deeply or, or whatever it might have, you know, the number of horrendous injuries we're seeing of people having, you know, arteries severed and, 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 and bleeding out before we can even get to them. You know, I've been to several jobs again, because we had people on our unit and, and firearms officers tend to have a slightly higher level of, of, police medic training and better trauma kits in our in our vehicles to deal with bleeds especially um you know i've, I've been to several um you know stabbings where it was you know young young lad on young lad stab stabbed each other um and catastrophic catastrophic injuries um and total disregard for the the consequences and i think that, and that's one of the problems of youth, isn't it? That, you know, you don't understand the consequences of what you're doing. Um, and and over nothing, you know, st stabbing somebody over some grudge or over some postcode or, or you know, you're in the wrong postcode, you're going to get stabbed. Um, so horrific, horrific injuries. And, and you know, 
um, I did some work with some of the trauma centres in London, you know, speaking some to some of the doctors there when I did some research um, because we have we had a lot of problem with, you know, threats to knives, uh, threats from knives to police officers. Um, and they were talking about the number of the average number of stab wounds going from, you know, 10 years ago where people were presenting in, in A&E with one or two stab wounds to now it's it's a dozen, it's 10 or a dozen stab wounds. It's, um, you, you, you know, all over the body. It's, you know, it, it, it's frenzied attacks rather than just, you know, stabbing somebody once and running away. It's these frenzied multiple stab wound uh, attacks all over, you know, and it's, um, it, it, it's pretty bad because, you know, it takes, it whilst it takes, a certain visceral um, um, anger to stab somebody because it's a real up close and personal weapon, isn't it? You've got to, you've got to really want to hurt somebody to stand that close and stab them. Um, but it, it doesn't require any skill whatsoever to do that. Um, and knives are readily available and they, they never run out of ammunition, you know, and, and then after you've done it, you can drop it down a drain or chuck it in a bin and it, it, in somewhere like London, the chances of that being found are quite slim. Um, and if you're searched in the street and they find you with a knife on, on you, what are the chances of you getting a significant sentence? Nothing really. You're probably going to get, if it's the first time, you might just get a caution for possession of an offensive weapon. I don't know. You know, it's, it, the, the consequences are not there. Um, uh, the, the penalties are not there. Uh, and, you, you know, People are not afraid to do it. I think that's the the other key thing is people are not afraid to stab each other. So again, reverse engineering. What is the root cause, you think, of a kid who should be focusing on sports that they love, friends and girlfriends or boyfriends, you know, their journey through an apprenticeship or to college, instead deciding that they're going to find a puffer with a hood so they can cover their face from security cameras and buy a machete from somewhere and start hacking people up? Um, I think, you know, my experiences with gangs have been with sort of thefts and things like that, or gangs involved in, in, in criminality, you know, armed robbery type, type things or, um, you know, moped gangs, people with knives, that kind of stuff using the knife to facilitate robberies um, as well as, you know, sort of random gang attacks. Um, so I, I think, you know, in my limited experience, it's, it's twofold. One is the gang culture, which we have really nicely learnt from the United States. You know, we've, well, it's one of the great imports. Thank you. We've, uh, for some reason, that's one of the things we've embraced um, is, is gang culture. And I don't know, what is attractive about that other than, you know, a sense of, uh, you know, a sense of, of belonging, um, sense of, of what else is there, a safety, you know, um, a safety in numbers. I can imagine, you know, I know, I know certain parts of the country are quite dangerous places to live. If you're not a member of a gang, I can, I can appreciate that. And, and I also know that, you know, one of the, you, you, you know, if you're in a gang, you often have to use violence to prove yourself in within these gangs, let alone having gangs that have, you know, sort of ritualistic sort of 
uh, you know, things that you have to do in order to get in in the first place. Um, but I, I think on the flip, so apart from the, the sort of gang, gang-related violence that is purely you're in my area or it's a tit-for-tat retaliation because one of your gang members stabbed one of my gang members, so we're now going to stab, stab one of your gang members. The, the never-ending tit-for-tat thing that seems to go on. Um, I've also seen a lot of street violence where people have used excessive violence to achieve a street robbery um, and or violence. I mean, I dealt with one case and I, I, I can't give too many specifics, but the but all I will say is this. Um, a person literally, um, I hate that word literally. I, you know, I hate when people overuse the word literally. But somebody uh, made a comment. Somebody walked past somebody and they were sitting in their way. And so a derogatory comment was made. And because a derogatory comment was made, um, the two people faced off against each other. And it was just a little bit of a, you, what do you, you know, don't talk to me like that. Well, I'll talk to you. Around. You know, that, it, was, it started, it was just words. It was words. It was nothing else but words. And one of them pulled a knife and stabbed the other one to death multiple times, something like 19 times. But the first stab wound was right in the throat, instant death. And apparently the person was, you know, instantly killed. You know, so you're now prepared to murder somebody because they've, uh, they, they've, I, I, I don't know, they've been disrespectful in your, in your weird world. They've disrespected you. And so you've murdered them. I, so for me, I, that, I'm out now. I, I don't understand that. That's the that's the bit of the psyche I don't understand. I don't understand. You know, I I, I talk to people who've been victims of street robberies, and uh, you know, after the robbery, after the robbery, after the fact that they've taken their wallet or their their bag or their phone, the violence then occurred. They then hit them. They then beat them. They then stabbed them. Uh, and the, and the, the victim would say, well, why did they do that? And I go, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. There's no rhyme or reason for that. You know, uh, in some respects, you can understand, albeit it's terrible, you can understand why people use violence or the threat of violence to steal something. You know, give me your wallet or I'm going to hit you with this hammer. Um, but what I don't understand is they've got the wallet and now they hit you with the hammer. Uh, and, and there are just as many examples of that as uh, as, uh, uh, as where there are examples of the, you know violence coming first it, it, i i don't understand the psyche of people that's what seems to have changed the the attraction of violence i suppose the proving themselves proving that there are they're a bigger badder dude than you are yeah, well, and I think, like you said, there is that kind of importation of gang culture from the U.S. Because, I mean, I'll put my hands up. When I was late teens, I loved hip-hop. So as a little, you know, Wiltshire farm boy that grew up around sheep and ducks, I was like, straight out of Corsham. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was, <laughs> I was all about that gang life, even though I had no idea. But then as you go older, you know, like, well, no, I don't want to actually shoot anyone. I don't want to sell drugs. I just, it was a good song. 
you know, but this is the problem. That's maturity. That's as you go. So now it's like, oh, you know, you watch the movie Juice, for example, which is a great, great film on the ridiculous nature of that whole concept, which leads to a lot of death and misery and loss of life, which is also death. Um, <laughs> that was a redundant thing. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but it is. It's, it's buying into that. The reality is two young people interact. One dies. The other one spends the rest of their life in prison. Where's the fucking conversation in reverse engineering? Again, arguably the mental health crisis that we have in our countries. A gun truly is a gun that sits in a gun safe or in, in a range and you fire, you know, you go paper targets or you do competitions or you do clay pigeon shooting or maybe you hunt and you, you know, you eat venison. That's what a gun is for. A knife carves, you know, makes dinner or carves a beautiful sculpture out of, out of wood. That's what a knife is. It's only when there's mental ill health, you know, that these become weapons. It's only when some shitbag decides to start a war with another country that a whole bunch of people pick up guns and murder each other for seemingly almost nothing. So, you know, this is this is what what's so frustrating with the average, let's say, European, because so many of our, you know, fellow countries also don't walk around carrying guns like we do here in America, and we're just stuck in this vicious circle at the moment here. What do you advise the average person? There are people walking around with edge weapons looking to do harm. What can a member of the UK carry on them to at least level the playing field if, God forbid, they get attacked? Um, the honest answer is nothing. Um, and because it's all because we are the law abiding people, we are not allowed to carry anything because the letter of the law says anything made, adapted, or intended to cause injury to a person is an offensive weapon, and therefore I can't have it in a public place. Made, adapted, or intended. Intended. So if I have a a rolled-up piece of cardboard in my pocket that, you know, I, I roll up a magazine, right? So I, I, I think, right, oh, I'm walking through a dangerous area. I'm going to roll up this magazine, and I'm going to hold it, so if I get attacked, I'm going to hit someone with this rolled up magazine. It's now an offensive weapon because my intent is to hurt someone with it. That is now I could get arrested for walking around with a rolled up magazine. It's insane. I mean, obviously, it, it, it's, that's, that's an unlikely scenario. But if you're going by the letter of the law, if I intend to do something with it. So even if I was to, you know, so you can't do anything. You can't own anything with the intent to hurt someone else with it but the bad guys can because they don't care so all you can do all you can do is use situational awareness and the reason why i don't say go and learn a martial art as great as martial arts are and as great as i mean i'm a massive fan of brazilian jiu-jitsu and or, uh, you, you know, all kinds of martial arts. You know, I used to love doing judo. I'm a you know big fan of of you name it. I love it. Right? It's it's fantastic. But in my experience, if anybody tells you they've got techniques that can successfully defend against a knife, in my experience, they're wrong. Because if you go up against somebody with a knife and you don't have one, and you don't have anything to defend yourself, and you're going to go empty-handed against the knife, then you are going to be lucky to walk away alive. 
if that person has the intent to kill you. Um, so situational awareness is the only way to prevent yourself getting hurt by someone with a knife. Stay away from them. If somebody has got a knife, you want to make really massive reaction. We get massive space. Now, I realize it's easy for me to say it because there's going to be times when you can't get away. And yes, so maybe some training is better than none. Yeah, I, I, you know, I get all of this and I, I'm not saying nothing works at all. But what I'm saying is, given the choice, use situational awareness. Listen to the hairs on the back of your neck that say, I shouldn't. Everyone I've spoken to who's been the victim of a knife knife point robbery has gone, you know, I knew there was something wrong. I knew I shouldn't have gone down there. I knew I shouldn't have taken the shortcut. I knew, I knew I shouldn't have parked my car on the top of the car parking, you know, the, 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 the NMCP car park. I, 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 I knew I felt like someone was following me. I thought he was following me. I didn't, you know, I just ignored it. it it's listen to that inner voice that says, this is not a safe thing for me to do and don't do it. You know, there's going to be, you're going to be unlucky at some point, potentially. Um, for me, the advice I give to lots of people um, is it's the same if I was going, if I'm going on holiday um, to somewhere I know is potentially dangerous, like when I come on holiday to the States, I have a throwaway wallet. I have a wallet that I don't mind giving to somebody. It's got, a, it's got, I don't know, 20 bucks in it. So it's got some cash in it, but nothing else. And so if somebody comes up to me and sticks a guy in my face and says, give me a wallet, I go, there you go. Take the thing because it's instant giveaway. You know, I'll chuck it. I'll let them take it, you know, um, because I'm not going to I'm not going to die over some property. Right? If they then go, I now want your watch and I'm sorry, I'm going to give it to them, you know, um, unless I believe because I've got nothing on me. I, I'm not allowed to conceal carry. You know, I can't defend myself. I've got no equipment. So I'm afraid to an extent I'm going to capitulate, um, especially if that's all I believe they want. Um, but, you know. It's a different story if, you know, you've got family there and you're being attacked and all that kind of thing. You know, let's keep it simple here. But, you know, the only way to stop yourself getting stabbed in the UK is to stay as far away from the pointy end of the knife as you can. <laughs> That's it, uh, you know. Yeah, it's it's such a hard thing to do because when I first came here, I was very... Anti-gun isn't the word because, like I said, I grew up around guns, but I didn't own a gun because I'm like, oh, you're part of the problem then. But then I had a near miss with my son in his school where I brought him back for a medical appointment and we had a code red and we genuinely thought someone was coming into the school. And I remember, you know, I think I wrote about this in my book, you know, looking at the paper guillotine where we were in this kind of office area, office supply area waiting for whatever was going to come through the door. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to have to cut this blade off and... You know, yeah. a, a guillotine blade against a God knows what weapon is probably not going to end well. But I mean, what choice do you have? But then you realize, OK, you know, just how vulnerable these children are in these schools, these teachers, everyone else. Now it becomes my toolbox. All right. I've got tourniquets. I've got medical supplies. I've got a fire extinguisher. I've got all these other things. Now I have a gun because God forbid I see someone walking towards a school with yeah. the intent to do harm. 
do I want to throw a tourniquet on him or do I want to send around downrange and maybe stop that before it ever happens? So this becomes a tool in the toolbox. Well, in the UK, that tool isn't an option. And I've heard a lot of people say, like in a knife fight, one of, one of my friends who's coming on who's a prison um, guard, I just heard him talk in another interview and he was saying, like, understand if there's a knife fight, you are going to get cut. So if yeah. you're in that situation, it's really just how can you minimize um the the injury whilst you in turn you know hopefully can isolate that that limb that has a knife in it and fight for your life but you yeah. know when you the level of yeah no, please oh, sorry all i was going to say is that he's absolutely right what i would add to that is the level of training you need to have to successfully do that is quite a lot so people uh, what i meant earlier was you know people who fool themselves by thinking they can go to a weekend seminar of Krav Maga and be able to defend against the knife. You know, that, that ain't, that ain't going to happen. If you want to dedicate your life to, you, you know, m martial arts and, and getting and, and do nothing but edge weapon stuff, you know, I, I wish you luck. You're still going to get cut, but you're probably going to be able to reduce the severity of your injuries. But for the most of us mortals who haven't got the, the time or the inclination to do that, you are in, in, in big, big trouble, but he is absolutely right. And, and just to echo what you said, I'll be completely honest with you. If if they let me carry a gun in the UK, I would. Because I have some training. I believe, even though I'm not in the police anymore, my moral compass is pointing in the right direction. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I, I believe that there are a norm there are enough situations that occur in the UK where if someone had been there with a knife, they could have stopped it an awful lot uh, with a gun. They could have stopped it an awful lot quicker. I'm not saying we should all carry guns, but, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, London Bridge. You know, I know I I went to both London Bridge attacks um, in, in London. I know personally officers who are really badly stabbed. Um, you know, I, I, I debriefed one of the officers who got really badly injured. Um, he was stabbed multiple times. And when he arrived on scene, the suspects weren't facing in his direction. So he managed to draw his baton and hit them with his baton when they were looking the other way. So the first hit, you know, uh, and if he'd have been there with a firearm, that's it. He, he would have potentially ended that situation there, then and there, and saved multiple lives. Um, you, you know, so like a number of things, like you, you know, I'm not into gun culture, but I think the reality is there's a time and a place for these things. And, and in the hands of trained, responsible people, I think they are a, a tool that sometimes are required. I was just speaking to one of your fellow Met armed police officers, um, and I'll I'll bring on names once he comes on here. But uh, he was present at the London Bridge attacks and was was saying right. even the the severity and and the grotesque nature of the the attacks was underreported. You know, it can almost oh, I, yeah. I don't know if it was deliberately downplayed so much as just probably saving the minds of most you know the average person. Yeah. But um, you know, it sounded absolutely horrific. So. As we transition, obviously, there's the kind of, you know, the narwhal horn story, which uh, I don't yes. know. I think you told this on the show maybe the first time that it wasn't even the first horn. Like he went back and got another yeah, horn. They went back and got the second one. He broke the first one. <laughs> so, you know, so we have this domestic terrorism, um, which, you know, more often than not, 
recently has been fundamentalist Islam, and I'm, let me be very clear, extremist, mentally ill people that cling to that particular religion. But you and I have spoke more recently about the threat being as much domestic as far as, you know, not just that, that one specific fundamentalist element. So, you know, we had the 7-7 bombings, we've had some of the London Bridge attacks, um, uh, you know, the... the uh, I'm, embarrassed i'm forgetting his last name lee who was it that was attacked with the machete Lee Rigby. thank you lee, lee, Rigby. lee rigby's attack um so you know we've had some horrendous things with the eyes that you have now you know 9-11 very much focused on one particular group and we've seen obviously some extremism come out of that talk to me about the the spectrum of threats that the american oh, excuse me the, the british people you know, are susceptible so we can educate and maybe make people a little bit more aware of situational awareness? I, I think, I mean, I th the first thing I would say is that, you know, you're, you're far more likely to be involved in a car crash than you are involved in any terrorism, you know. Um, it, it, we, are, we are very good in the UK. Our intelligence services are very good. Our police are very good. At investigating, um, uh, you know, terrorist terrorists and acts of terrorism, and and we're pretty good. Yeah, I mean, people slip through the net, but then uh, I, again, I'm I'm sure you are probably aware of how many people it takes to do proper surveillance, and so it's it's undeniable that that we don't have enough resources to 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 keep everybody on watch lists that we would like to keep on watch lists and and uh, uh, and and put everyone under surveillance that we would want to put under surveillance um but i think also it's very it, it, it's naive to think that the only source of terrorism is um uh, is fundamental islamic terrorism because of, of course it isn't and and um uh, and also the other thing to bear in mind is is that a lot of the time when you hear about acts of terrorism and you look into the person who's perpetrated it, whilst they are inspired by, um, I don't know, religious extremism, um, they usually or quite often have got some fundamental mental health issue going on there as well. So, um, you know, in some respect, it, it, they're not part of, I, th I think the, the, the public tend to think of, think of it as like there's some sort of, you know, big organization, you know, like, like Spectre from James Bond, you know, <laughs> that, that is organizing all these. And there, there's a, a head of the terrorist organization is sitting there in his leather swivel chair stroking his cat, um, you know, organizing all of these terrorist attacks. Um, when of course it's, it's not like that at all on, on the whole. I'm sure there might be, there might be a blowfeld somewhere, but I've never met him. I've never met a criminal mastermind. I'll be honest. Um, um, I, I think what happens more often is that people are, um, suffering from mental health illness they're looking for things to latch onto, and they are easily susceptible um and so they end up um you know um end up getting involved in acts of terrorism um but i think we also forget that um that there's a lot of 
domestic threats. And I don't I don't mean that we should be you know worried about our next door neighbour, but I think there are just as many sort of fundamentalists from a variety of different um, uh, backgrounds and beliefs that 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 are just as dangerous. You know, I'm thinking of people like Hans Brevik, um, you know, uh, who who shot a load of people. You know, and you, you've got um, neo-Nazi um, fundamentalists. You've got you know anti-capitalist fundamentalists. You've got people who are uh, you know, any sort of institution, there, there'll be people who are anti that and there are people who w- would happily use um, at the lowest level, you know, disruption tactics and at the highest level violence to to achieve their ideological aim, which, you know, depending on which definition of terrorism you want to uh, you want to adhere to, it, it, it is that idea of, of trying to use fear to achieve your uh, ideological aim, isn't it? So, um, and and that that can happen anywhere. And I think we'd be really naive just to look at one group of people and go, "Well, they're terrorists." Well, no, you know that that they can come from anywhere, and any organisation, you know, can have individuals in it who are prepared to use violence. One thing that I've seen. Um... And I've, it's funny, it's kind of reared its head in Portugal a little bit recently, and uh, that's where some of my family are. Um, I certainly saw, I've just seen it pervasive here in the US, the last two administrations. So there's a lot of very, very diehard Trump supporters in this country. But from, you know, taking a step back from a very objective view, I, there was no question that, you know, a lot of the the division and you could argue almost kind of some of the the racial um intolerance there was th- there was fuel thrown on that and the, don't get me wrong this current administration equally is divisive and then i almost feel like again even i mean i think it was almost like brexit where it was surfacing his nasty fucking head in 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 the uk as well with this division that we saw in covid i i can't help but feel that some groups you know that there's a, there's an upside to division, divide and conquer, and by labeling other people the boogeyman, whether it's pro or anti mask, whether it's skin color, whether it's religion, whatever, you know, there there was some comparisons to fascism and, and Hitler and some of these things and some of these uh, these quote unquote leaders, and I'm using that term very fucking loosely um, with that. But it's not like oh no, we're not talking like you know auschwitz but we're talking warning signs early on in some of the the journeys of some of these people that ended up being horrible fucking tyrants in our history what have you seen as far as that division and and you know are there any elements like national front that are starting to gain strength again after being you know extinguished for a long long time it doesn't have to be extremisms like that i mean just a general feeling Uh, i'll I'll talk about something that, that sort of links to this, and and um, and it, it was something that made me feel distinctly uneasy about being in the police um, for the first time ever. Really, was uh, and it was when I saw families um, who were protesting in Hyde Park um, uh, uh, over COVID. Um, and there were, you know, there, there were, there were some protests there. And I, and, and I'll be honest, I, I can't even remember whether it was over what, what element of, um, COVID they were arguing, they were 
protesting about that that part of it hasn't stuck in my memory ironically um but the thing that stuck in my mind was that you had um families in a public park in london and you had police officers using force and batons to clear them out of the park um because obviously gatherings weren't allowed um and um i'll be honest that that day i felt very happy that i was no longer in public order policing because that was an order i would not have felt comfortable following and that's a weird and i suppose how this links in to 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 your question is that there's a there's a comedy sketch um and I can't quite remember who it was, but I think it might be Armstrong and Miller, but I, I, someone will correct me if I'm wrong. But basically, these two comedians are dressed up in Nazi uniform. And one of them sort of says to the other, he goes, Hans, and he says, yeah? And he says, uh, I've noticed we have a uh, skull and crossbones on the cap. And he goes, yeah, and, and our uniforms are all black. And he goes, yeah, and he goes, Hans, are these the bad guys? And and it, I I kind of thought, isn't it interesting? It's all about perspective, isn't it? You know how I wonder if they realised that they were the bad guys, and and how this refers to my recent story is that that I, I thought for the for the first time ever I was like, I'm not sure I'm morally on the right side of this argument, and that was a really weird place to be because. You know, there's for me. There's always been a there's there's always a difference in the b between. Okay, is that technically an offence? You know, I, I've always been a big believer in my discretion as a police officer. It's one of the things that sets us apart from a machine is that I have discretion and I can actually look at a situation and decide. And uh, and you know, yes, there is the letter in the law, and there is common sense, and there is time and time again where offences get ignored time and time again and i'm even things like at football matches the kind of chanting and some of the behavior that goes on and drunkenness that goes on on a saturday night you wouldn't tolerate that at other times you know but you tolerate it on new year's eve or you tolerate it at a football match so there are times there's loads of examples of where you kind of let things slide a little bit um and this was one of those examples where i thought you know, am I on the wrong side of of the moral viewpoint here? You know, hang on, is this is should we be doing this? You know, it's one of the questions I always used to ask officers who use force. I would say, yeah, I know you've got a power to use force, but did you need to? Did you absolutely? Need, was there another option? Um, and I suppose how this links into all of the the whole question of have, have I seen a sort of a rise in in in, in groups and and. I've certainly seen a rise in people who I would not expect um, saying things like, I'm not sure I agree with that, um, because there's been a lot of very decisive stuff that's gone on. And a lot of people, a lot of friends have fallen out over recent events, you know, because 
opinions have been very divided on a number of things. And I think that's the first time I've ever seen that in my lifetime, where people have been so divided over things like mask wearing, vaccines, politics, uh, lockdowns, um, oil, climate change, you know, all of these things at the moment are, are things where people are becoming so divisive. I think that that the, the, all it seems to be doing, and I don't think the media is helping here, is that um, we're not being brought together as a as a as a nation or or even as a species. We're being people are encouraging the divisions, and 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 pe- people are making more of a more of a thing about oh no, if you need to sit in this camp and you sit in that camp, and I think that divisive attitude is really problematic and i think that's going to make things worse and it is going to encourage and i couldn't tell you if if the 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 membership of the edl has gone up or the membership of you know the bnp or you know know, i i don't know the statistics on those things but but you certainly hear more and more people being vocal about a number of things that historically they didn't seem to care so much about Uh, and that i find a bit disturbing well, I mean, I appreciate your perspective. I think this is it. This is, you know, I think we are early days. And this is when the big, you know, the red flags are going up. And it's time for us to kind of take a step back and go, wait a second. You know, because I I did a post the other day. I think it was um, a George Orwell clip. And he was talking about 1984 and could this happen in the future? And we're talking about, I think it was like the 60s or 50s he was talking. And he was basically underlying everything that's going on now. It was, it was you know, haunting. But... Yeah, to me, the opposite of tyranny is community, you know, and like you said, if you're locked alone in a flat, you know, surrounded by millions of people, but, you know, just painfully alone, painfully um, lonely, that is the opposite of the tribes that we all came from all over the world. We were all part of tribes, you know, no, the, the, the hermit is, a, is an anomaly in the human experience. So the moment we're divided, the weaker we get. And we've got to have this awakening that this is in some groups being manufactured. It's it's very deliberate. And you look at Ukraine, the way that it's presented, all Ukrainians are angels, all Russians are the devil. Now, you know, I say, so Ivan, the, the, the Russian farmer, way away from the Ukraine border, do you think he gives a shit about going into the Ukraine? You know what I mean? So, you know, and the Chi- oh, the Chinese, the Chinese. Chinese, you know, most Chinese are, are beautiful people, but are they being oppressed by a tyrant? You know, absolutely. North Korea, you know, there's 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 people that are, you know, they don't have a choice in some of these countries, but if we paint the whole country, then oh, okay, that's our next war. Now the, you know, industrial military industrial complex goes and makes trillions of dollars again. Meanwhile, our police officers are getting paid 19,000 pounds a year. You know what I mean? So the, we we have to fucking open our eyes and realize that some of this division is deliberate that we are the British people, we are the American people, more importantly, we are global species. And look back in time and go, dude, there's a fucking history book that goes back thousands of years that shows a few nasty, hateful, greedy people have controlled the masses. But we we forget to look at that pyramid. Like, we're the base. You know, we can flick that little fucker off the top, you know, bury him and put some good people up there. But I can't help but feel like 
This is why I like these COVID conversations, because if we just move on, we ignore so many warning signs. And I've said this many, many times. A leader unites people in crisis. A tyrant divides them. And you look at the UK, Australia, New Zealand, America. There's a lot of examples where someone had an opportunity to do so much good, to unify the people, to really pull into the front, the obesity epidemic, the mental health crisis, gangs, you know, all these things. And the opposite was done. And there's countries all over the world that did it so well. Scandinavia always, you know, seems to come up. So, you know, your perspective on this, I think, is so important because we... We need an awakening where we reclaim our nations in a positive way, you know, tribalism in a positive way, not stabbing other football members, you know, but actually coming together. For example, the World Cup, beautiful analogy. No matter where you're from, it's the love of the game. Yeah, totally. I'm I'm sure other people share my opinion on this, but, you know, I, I was so disappointed in our leadership or lack thereof in a crisis. You know, I I wasn't alive, obviously, during, I know I look old, but I wasn't alive during the <laughs> Second World War. But, you know, I I just longed for Winston Churchill. And, and I, I'm sure there were lots of things bad about Winston Churchill. I'm, I'm looking through rose-tinted spectacles. I'm sure someone will tell me. But I just wanted somebody like that to stand up and go, we're going to get, th- come on, folks, you know. And, and I'll be honest, you know, I... Okay, you know, I'm a ma- massive fan of the Queen. You know, I, I can't I can't deny it, you know. I I I, I you know, I had the, the Queen's crown on my cat badge my whole career. And uh, you know, and I felt for me it was every any time she appeared during the pandemic and spoke, that was what was stirring, that was what was moving for me. That was that was leadership. Um not not Boris with his hair all over, looking like he he just woken up and um and and, and you know standing going well you know uh, oh I've forgot my speech you know so um it, it was disappointing. Somebody actually told me I don't know how true this is, um but um I obviously know a few people who'd uh, done protection for Boris Johnson. Somebody suggested to me that he actually does that on purpose just before. You know, he he makes a public appearance. He messes his hair up. Um, you know, he just makes it look even more messy. I don't know what what uh, whether that's true or not, or whether he's trying to give an impression that he's you know too busy to comb his hair. But I was just so disappointed that we, people had an opportunity there to to stand up and be great leaders, and and uh, and we we so needed that. And now because we didn't have that, all of that proves to me is we've now got to have our own community leaders. I think those are the people who stood out through the pandemic and, and continue to stand out. These people in our local communities who we go, that's the person we want to look to, the person who's doing things for the, the person who's setting up these, you know, help groups, the person who's taking, um, you know, groceries around. So there's a, just around the corner from where I live, there's a little, um, a, a little food shop sells a variety of groceries and all kinds of proper old-fashioned, you know, shop. And Paul, the guy who who runs it, um, throughout COVID, he was off his own back just throwing stuff in the back of his car and delivering it to people who couldn't get out. You know, and 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 when me and my wife had COVID, you know, he brought 
he brought food round. He brought and, and he didn't he didn't ask for money. He said, "Oh, pay me, pay me later, pay me another time." You know, and I know he did that for loads of other people. Um, and that kind of behaviour for me is what what stood out, and that's leadership. And those are the people we need to applaud, and those are the stories we need to hear of people in the local community have just done something to make a difference, rather than. Um, you know, looking to our, our leadership uh, that's, that's sadly lacking. I think one of the best analogies, and I urge everyone who hasn't seen it to go watch the, the documentary on the Grenfell fire. You watch yes. what that community did, which, you know, the towers kind of look over Kensington, but the, you know, where they are is a poorer community, a lot of immigrants in there. When that happened, and, you know, I always give kudos to the uh, London Fire Brigade. I mean, as a firefighter, understanding the challenges of that fire. And I had uh, Ricky Nuttall on was one of the guys that went, you know, made it all the way up to the top with his partner and was unable to make a rescue because they were out of air and had to come back down, even though it was probably untenable and everyone was dead anyway. Yeah. But, you know, so I've heard stories that Danny Cotton, who was the chief at the time. Um, but you you watch the, the documentary and the community came together. There were mosques and synagogues and churches and temples that all came together and, you know, housed all the, the victims. And like you said, people that had food were bringing food and everyone was donating clothes. That is community. That is leadership. And then what happened after that? You know, again, oh, let's blame the fire service for the Grenfell fire and the people that actually were responsible have, have alluded capture yeah. to this point you know so Funny this that. is what we've got to understand leadership yeah. is you know new york on 9-11 when when everyone banded yeah. together it is grenfell you know it's these seven seven you know these these yeah. and it's sad that it takes tragedy but that is our true humanity and like you said when our responders are out there on the front line in covid you know, and and our, our people in NHS and obviously everyone else that was, was you know, working in the water plants and picking up our rubbish and all these people that were truly out there, the admiration for that, the moment that that admiration was lost, we've got to ask ourselves why. Why am I angry at that nurse or firefighter now for not having a vaccine? You know, why am I unwilling to give that doctor or nurse a pay raise after they basically saved our country, you know, yeah. for, for months and months? So taking a step back, refining examples of true community and leadership, looking at what you're being told on your screen and questioning. And like you said, and I agree 100%, you want to change the world, start at home. And then once you know, you, you're, you've you got that somewhat in order, step outside your front door and be part of the solution in your own community. That is how you change your country and ultimately the planet. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dave, it's been Absolutely. it's been an amazing conversation. Um, I normally have some closing questions, but obviously we've been talking for close to three hours now, so I want to be mindful of your time. Is there anything else you want to want to add before we wrap this up? No, other than look, this this has been a, a fantastic uh, honour to talk to you again, and and I hope I haven't bored your listeners too much. But you know, it's just an an ordinary guy's experience of uh, of of uh, of what I've done and there's loads of people doing way more impressive stuff than me, you know. Um, but, you know, maybe I just represent the every man. We're all out here still doing the job. <laughs>